Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. Quite frankly, I get most of my news from you. Joan Esposito. Y'all ready for this? On WCPT 820. Hello. Thank you for joining me this Tuesday, January 30th. I'm laughing because... I don't know. The time moves more slowly at the beginning of the week. And I almost said, welcome to Thursday. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. Got to got to find new drugs, Joan. Got to stay a little bit more present. Thank you for joining me this Tuesday, January 30th. Um, There's so much going on. This ridiculous impeachment of the Department of Homeland Security Oh, the um, there's still fallout from the E. Jean Carroll verdict. People are starting to talk about exactly how we should be talking about and treating Donald Trump. Uh, yeah, lots, lots going on. I don't know if you saw them, but E. Jean Carroll and her two attorneys, um, Roberta Kaplan and um, oh Sean Crowley, I believe it is, is the other person's name. And uh, E. Jean Carroll were all together on Rachel Maddow after um, the, ver- the verdict uh, from the jury that $83.3 million should be um, how Donald Trump is encouraged to stop talking about E. Jean Carroll. So far, so far he has, though, uh, I believe it was Rachel Maddow pointed out that while he's no longer commenting directly about Eugene Carroll, he is uh, he has been on Truth Social posting links to articles, apparently, that uh, that trash her. Gee, I'm I'm just so I'm shocked, shocked. I tell you, shocked. Um, I thought it was very interesting. The discussion that the lawyers and E. Jean Carroll herself had with Rachel Maddow. Rachel asked E. Jean Carroll if if she how the how the trial affected her mentally and how she looked at Donald Trump and thought about Donald Trump. And again, I can speak from personal experience what it is like to be involved in a big court case. And it is, I can't begin to describe the emotions that go through, even when you know you're in the right, even when you know you are doing God's work. It is, it is a physical it is a physically draining, emotionally draining experience. Um, I mean, I was involved in litigation for just a matter of months, not all the years that E. Jean Carroll has been, and <clears throat> in just a matter of <clears throat> in just a matter of months, among other things, I like lost ten pounds. I mean, you just are stressed all the time. So I thought that it was really fascinating when E. Jean Carroll told Rachel Maddow that, first of all, it was a very draining experience for her, but she had these revelations about Donald Trump. 
and the power that he did or did not have. Listen to Eugene Carroll. What you're describing there in terms of him being nothing, him feeling like an animal, him feeling yeah. not intimidating. Was that a shock to you? Because, I mean, yeah. your guts here, your bravery here includes the physical bravery about being around him again. It sounds like it didn't go the way you expected it to once you were in the same room. No, Rachel, I was terrified. I, w- I was uh, just a bag of sweating corpuscles as we prepared for trial. And uh, three day, four days before trial, I had an actual breakdown. I lost my ability to speak. I lost my words. I couldn't talk. And, and I couldn't go on. It was, that's how frightened I was. But oddly, we went into court. Robbie took uh, the lectern. I sat in the witness chair like this. And she said, uh, Miss Carroll, good morning. Would you please spell your name for the court? And amazingly, I looked out, and he was nothing. He was nothing. He was a phantom. It was the people around him who were giving him power. He himself was nothing. It was an astonishing um, uh, uh, discovery for me. He's nothing. We don't need to be afraid of him. He can be knocked down. And knock him down, she did. She was later asked in the interview where if Donald Trump cannot stop himself and begins repeating the same lies, defaming her yet again, would she, if her lawyers came to her and said, let's go back to court, he's doing it again, Rachel said, would you do that? And E. Jean looked at Rachel and said, yes, in a heartbeat. So Donald Trump, if you don't want to lose any more money to this woman, Mr. I'm a brilliant businessman, keep your mouth shut. How's that? You know, a long time ago, there was something else I wanted to share with you, but I, I... um, remember, I from time to time play those um, audio clips from first term North Carolina Congressman Jeff Jackson. And one of the earliest clips that he posted that I shared with you um, was from his first hundred days in Congress. And he said that he didn't mention them by name, but, you know, the ones the the people in Congress who say the outrageous things, who get all the media attention, who um you know, seemed to be there for the spectacle and not for the lawmaking. He said that he had been in committees with some of those people. And he said there was a very interesting thing that he observed. He said when there were television cameras recording whatever they were doing, he said those people were gonzo. They were outrageous. They were over the top. But when he was in committee meetings with them and there were no television cameras he said they put their heads down and they just did their jobs very quietly with um, no spectacle they play to the cameras because what gets them a higher profile in marjorie taylor green's case like trump she's able to fundraise off of her outrageousness 
But when the cameras aren't there, they just put their heads down and do their job. Sean Crowley, one of E. Jean Carroll's lawyers, said something very similar about Trump's lawyer, Alina Haba, that I thought was very interesting. You know, Alina Haba um, was reprimanded by the judge several times, and the judge uh, clearly let everyone in the courtroom know that she didn't understand the rules of evidence that uh, he thought she needed to brush up on the rules of evidence that she didn't really always know what she was doing. She's taken a lot of grief. Um, when Donald Trump was in the courtroom, she was objecting and objecting to things that were being done and said, being overruled, being overruled, being overruled. And... The thinking was what we were seeing on the news reports was Alina Haba. But maybe, just maybe, there was a little bit of not playing to the cameras, but playing to Donald Trump. Listen to what Sean Crowley said. Because remember, after the verdict, Alina Haba came out and went to the microphones and they were like, you know, do you regret that? She was like, no. This is like one of the proudest moments of my life. I don't regret anything. I couldn't be prouder to represent the former president of the United States. I mean, she was she she came out like she'd won something. And uh, Sean Crowley was asked about Alina Haba. This is what she had to say. I think that uh, she had a hard job um, and you could definitely see a difference between her sort of style when he was in the courtroom and when he was not there. Um, she was much more disciplined and frankly acted more like a lawyer when he wasn't yeah. there. Um, when he was, I mean, you could hear him telling her when to object and muttering things and, you know, loudly being frustrated with her. And I think she felt like she had to say things to the judge and to us and sort of put on a performance like you just saw in front of the TV cameras. Isn't that interesting? Alina Haba playing to the TV cameras, playing to Donald Trump because that was what he wanted and expected of her. The other attorney, the lead attorney on this case is a woman by the name of Roberta Kaplan. Uh, she joined Anderson Cooper to talk about um, this verdict. And... Her takeaway, or what she would like us to take away from this whole proceeding, is that the rule of law applies to everybody, even Donald Trump. It was a really, really fascinating exchange. This, Remember, this was after the jury awarded E. Jean Carroll $83.3 million for Donald Trump's second defamation of her. But the takeaway is that nobody is above the law. The rule of law applies to everybody. Listen to this. You're obviously very experienced. What was this whole experience in the courtroom like? I, I've been to, in a lot of courtrooms in my time, especially in New York City, and I've seen a lot of judges. I have never seen a party be so openly contemptuous of the authority of the court and the authority of our justice system and the legitimacy of our justice system 
as Donald Trump. And I think the best thing of today, other than the vindication that Eugene Carroll so deserved, is that today was a good day for our system of justice. Today was a day that showed that the rule of law applies to everyone. Even if you don't think the rule of law applies to you, it applies to you and apply today to Donald Trump. Yeah. Amen to that. Uh, in Sean Crowley, Sean Crowley did um, part of the closing arguments. <laughs> and uh, she said to the jury, you see for yourself a man who is out of control, undisciplined. You see it because Donald Trump was reprimanded by the judge a couple of times because he was muttering, but not just like, you know, not quietly. He was muttering loud enough to be heard by everybody. He was doing like this running commentary about how unfair everything was. And Sean Crowley said to the jury, you see, we, you know, it's like we don't even have to prove our case. You see that this is not a man who can follow the rules. This is not a man who can be reined in. And, you know, both of the lawyers just shook their heads and said, Donald Trump in the courtroom made their case for them. When Roberta Kaplan was delivering her part of the closing arguments, that's when Donald Trump abruptly stood up and walked out of the courtroom. And again, Roberta Kaplan turned to the jury and she's like, you see it for yourself. This is a man who believes the rules don't apply to him. Roberta Kaplan also shared with the jury some of the um, statements that Donald Trump had made in other depositions where he talked about his incredible wealth, his billions and billions of dollars in um, overall Wealth and that how he has just he has four hundred million dollars just sitting around, just walking around money. And she played those two things because the whole point was. Come to an agreement on an amount of money that will teach him once and for all that he has to abide by the rules. And boy, oh, boy. That's exactly what the jury did. I'm going to share one more thing. Um, Katie Fang is an MSNBC a legal correspondent. And uh, she was uh, talking about um, Alina Haba. Now, remember, Alina Haba, after getting her butt handed to her, came out to the microphones and was like shouting at people that she was proud of what she did and she had no regrets. And the president rep- representing him was the greatest day, the greatest thing in her life. <clears throat> Katie Fang, legal um, commentator on uh, many MSNBC shows, uh, a lawyer herself had... Um, a little observation on MSNBC. Listen to this. 
the biggest lessons, Ari, in this instance is you better get a good lawyer to help you. I think you see that defiance on Alina Haba's face when she came out of court today and the fact that she thought it was her proudest moment. Well, as a trial lawyer, I want to be proud to lose, but I also don't mind losing if I can learn a lesson. If you can lose and learn a lesson, it's a valuable moment, right? I don't think she's learned a lesson. No, I don't think she has either. Um, before the actual uh, jury um, amount was announced, uh, Alina Haba did a podcast. Uh, I don't know with who, probably some weirdo conservative. It wasn't anybody that I recognized as famous. And they asked her, Alina, would you, if you had a choice, would you choose to be pretty or would you choose to be smart? Alina Haba responded, I'd choose to be pretty because I can always fake smart. Can you believe that? Can you believe that? I would choose to be pretty because I can always fake being smart. Except in the court of law, where she was repeatedly embarrassed by the judge about not understanding, like, say, how evidence works. Good grief. Good grief. Okay. Uh, we have a lot to talk about today. We are going to get to um, all of it. An uh, interesting day. We're going to be talking to Joe Walsh after this. And after we speak to Joe Walsh, we're going to be talking to a uh, former CBS Network News L.A. Deputy Bureau Chief Bruce Rines. Um, we are going to talk to them a lot about this whole immigration thing. I mean, it's just it's just insane. Even one of the Republicans on Fox, uh, Republican Senator Lankford, was uh, there are Republicans who are disgusted by their fellow Republicans wanting to back away from the immigration issue and not pass anything, not pass any kind of reform. Why? Because that's what Donald Trump has asked them. Um, he thinks that um, immigration, migration, that's a winning issue for him. So he doesn't want them to do anything. He doesn't want them to pass any laws because he doesn't want it to look like Joe Biden has accomplished anything when it comes to the border. See? See how that works? So I know you've been negotiating. I know you've been spending hours on this. But but don't do it. Just 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 back away from it. Just bury it. He's denying today. He's denying he said it. But uh, Speaker of the House, Mike Johnson, reportedly uh, said privately that despite all the time they've spent negotiating a deal, that he is not going to support the deal going forward because it's what Donald Trump wants. That's not going over great with everybody, though I think that I think that the disgust is going to be very muted if we hear anything at all publicly. As I said, there was um, there was an interview on um, on Fox with a Republican Senator James Lankford. He is the Republican senator 
uh, from Oklahoma. And uh, he is, he's, you may have heard his name before, because in Oklahoma, the, the Republican Party in Oklahoma voted to uh, censure him. They voted to condemn him. Why? Because he was involved in bipartisan talks on the border. He committed the sin of speaking to Democrats. That was why they censured him. Not because he was working on a border policy, but because he was doing it in a bipartisan way. Can you believe that? They voted to censure him. He was on Fox. And this is real quick, so listen closely. And uh, he had a he had a he touched on how his fellow Republicans were approaching this issue. And I think you get a sense of how he feels about them. Listen to this. It is interesting. Republicans four months ago would not give funding for Ukraine, for Israel and for our southern border because we demanded changes in policy. So we actually locked arms together and said, we're not going to give you money for this. We want a change in law. And now it's interesting. A few months later, when we're finally getting to the end, they're like, oh, just kidding. I actually don't want to change in law because it's a presidential election year. Yeah. A.K.A. Donald Trump uh, doesn't want any legislation passed. No border reform, whether it is um, helpful or not. And, you know, here's the thing. Maybe in a previous times, things like this would have been arranged behind closed doors and most voters would never have known about it. But he's given Donald Trump is giving the Democrats a huge talking point. Are you kidding me? We were all set. We had bills. Everything was ready to go. And you guys pulled the plug. Why? Because Donald Trump wanted to use it as a talking point. That ain't going to help Donald Trump. And it isn't going to help Republicans in Congress or in the Senate. Lankford is smart enough to see beyond the end of his nose. Lankford is smart enough that's that's the thing. There aren't too many Republicans who seem to be able to see down the road, to be able to approach these things strategically. Yes, in the short term, Donald Trump said, don't do this. But in the long term, how many of us is this going to come back to haunt? How many of us are going to face serious challenges to keeping our seats because people know we had a deal all but negotiated and we backed away from it because Donald Trump wanted to make an issue of this issue and didn't want it, look like, it to look like Biden was having any success. This is a recurring theme. This is, a rec- this is why the Oklahoma Republican Party censured Jim Lankford. Because when you do things in a bipartisan manner, you can't attack the other side for doing nothing if they helped you out with it, right? So what is this going to mean in a month when we are once again looking at a government shutdown? Is that going to be something that Donald Trump tells them not to vote for, too? Is that going to be... 
something that they back away from? Mike Johnson all but had a deal negotiated. We've called this a do-nothing Congress. I think the do-nothingness is going to be the be the way things happen from now on. And it wouldn't surprise me at all if this this kind of lack of bipartisan ability leads to a government shutdown come March. We'll see. It would be nice if I was wrong. Let's take a break and get uh, former Illinois Congressman uh, Jim Walsh here after a break. Joe is going to be here in just a minute. This is Chicago's Progressive Talk, 820 a.m., WCPT Willow Springs, and online at WCPT820.com, where facts matter. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. You see him all the time on the cable news shows. He used to be a congressman from the great state of Illinois. Joe Walsh joins us now. Joe, how are you doing? Joan Esposito, I have missed you profoundly. (laughs) Oh, oh, be still my heart. You know, I'm going to invite you on every week just so you can say nice things to me. I would come on every week just to be your biggest cheerleader. It's good to be with you. Thank you. Um, And I know needy is not an attractive look, so I will try to be stronger, Joe. Um, There's so, so much that I want to talk to you about. I want to start off by going back a few weeks. Uh, I read uh, Adam Kinzinger's uh, Substack, and he did a whole post about the best way to campaign against Donald Trump. And he said what matters most to him in the whole world is being strong and being a winner. So what do you do? You hammer away at the fact that he's a loser, not a winner, and that he's a whiner and a complainer. And he said, don't, I, want, I, I don't want the Biden administration to do it once. I don't want the Biden administration to do it twice. He said, I want them to take this tack and do it nonstop, day in and day out. And he said, then you get to a point where Donald Trump says one of his Trumpian things and you can roll your eyes and go, there he goes again, just complaining and whining. And um, James Carville said something very similar. He was just on with Jen Psaki on MSNBC. And he also wants to make sure that reporters, radio hosts, and even regular folks don't normalize Trump. Uh, Andy, can you play that uh, James Carville sound real quick? I mean, this is not a normal election. We can't treat it like that. But in your view, how should people, there's no historical parallel, how should people be talking about it out there? Well, first of all, Donald Trump is an adjudicated rapist. Uh, that's in, in the words of the judge. By the ordinary definition, actually, maybe he's just a sexual assaulter but been found by a jury. He's also mm-hmm. an adjudicated business fraud. Mm-hmm. This is not normal. And, and so he must be identified as that at all times. And if the press is go, well, Trump said this, Biden said that, Biden said this, Trump, no, no. It, it, they have to be reminded at every juncture. This is, you know, when I grew up, uh, 
in, I was in college during the civil rights era. That's how bold I am. And you know what Pulitzer Prize winning journalists didn't do when Martin Luther King said something? They didn't go to Bull Connor and get a response. They planted what King didn't. They won Pulitzer Prizes. And there's a lot of these journalists, and you work with them, you know a lot of them. Mm -hmm. They just can't wait to normalize this. They can't wait to have drinks and yucks with Jason Miller uh, or Steve Miller and just act like everything is just, you know, it's, it's a... Clinton and Dole, it's Obama and Romney, and yeah. we want to have our fun just like, you know, you and Jen did. No, that's not what it is. That's not it at all. We can't let them do that. What do you think, Joe? Well, I agree, and I'd go further than Carville. I, I was on CNN, Joe, two days ago, and I called Trump an adjudicated rapist, and the CNN host corrected me. Um, and which said is what? Absolute uh, and said, well, you know, technically we don't use that term because he wasn't found guilty of rape. And I said, excuse me, a jury found him guilty of sticking, pardon my language, Joan, mm. two fingers up a woman's vagina um, without her approval. What is that? That's what the jury determined. But my, my broader point is even CNN gets afraid to call him out for what he is easily one time every day, Joan, I say on Twitter or somewhere, do not normalize him. And generally what I refer to is we should say this every damn day. Mm -hmm. He's the only president in American history who lost an election and refused to accept that election loss. And more importantly, Joan, he's the only president in American history who did lead a violent attempt to overthrow an election. I get how we have to talk about he's a business fraud and he's a rapist and all this other stuff. But damn it, he's an insurrectionist. And, and, and that's to me, that's what we have to scream from the mountaintop all the time. I <laughs> I am. I am right there with you. I think that James Carville also made a really interesting point about the media, because I've been saying this for years. You know, the New York Times, like we'll have we'll have fabulous. Uh, we'll add like hundreds of thousands of jobs. Yeah. And instead of just saying, it, you know, we've added hundreds of thousands of jobs in this amount of time, the headline will be we've added Hundreds of thousands of jobs, but can Biden sustain it? There's always yeah. got to be the it's I don't know. Oh, well, you know, there was a survey done about the articles, um, what topics were most frequently reported on in yeah. the New York Times and the Washington Post and what topics were of most interest to Democrats and Republicans and the topics that were found to be of most interest to Republicans. I know you're going to be shocked by this. Those were the topics most often reported on by the New York Times. So anybody who thinks that mainstream media is is by its nature left leaning has not been paying attention because the I, I actually canceled my subscription to the daily digital New York Times because every yeah. day I found myself screaming at it. You know, like it was it was always this sort of what about ism. And I think Carvel makes a good point. You know, I mean, it's OK to just report on what happened. You don't have to get, you know, a, a differing opinion. You don't have to uh, combine it with some kind of negative. Just report what happened. Isn't that what we used to do? 
This is, and again, you and I could have a whole other day because generally the, the media generally is left of center, and that's fine. But, Joan, I take your point, and they bend over backwards, it seems like lately, to not appear left of center. So they go to these crazy, stupid lengths, and they do want a horse race, and they focus on the horse race. And look, it's, it's going to be Trump-Biden. It, it was always going to be Trump-Biden again. And they're already just into the horse race stuff when that guy gets out there, Donald Trump, every single day and just lies every single day. And, and we need to be reminded about who he is. Now, that's Joe Biden's job. That's Team Biden's job. They need to be leading on this. Absolutely. And um, I'm sure you read about um, the apparent leak <laughs> that came from the Obama folks about how they met with uh, Biden at the White House some months ago. And Obama was concerned that everything in Joe's campaign was too centralized. Everything had to either come from or go through the White House. There was no um, real solid leadership out in any of the states. And this meeting took place. And one of the uh, man who does consulting at the presidential level told me, he said, that wasn't that didn't leak by accident, Joan. The the Obama people made their case. They felt that that their pleas fell on deaf ears. So they released it publicly to bring more pressure on on Biden about how the campaign is going. What do you think about that? I don't think there's look, (laughs) this may sound strange. There's no huge love loss between Team Biden and Team Obama, Mm -hmm. um, even though they are allies and they're on the same side. Um, And and all you have to do, Joan, and I know you do because you're so astute, you follow this stuff all the time. Just listen to what David Axelrod's been saying the last year. I mean, he's been uber critical of Joe Biden, but Obama's right. I'm going to tell you that there's been an assumption on the Biden campaign for a while now that all they have to do is say Donald Trump is bad and they're going to win. And that's all they have to do. That's all they have to do because they're running against him. That's a bunch of bull. That's arrogant. That's out of touch. And I'm telling you, Biden needs to get out there. Joe Biden's old. Trump's old, too. Trump's also nuts. He's a psychopath. He's a pathological liar. He's a traitor. He's a criminal, all that. But Joe Biden's old. And that's a real big issue with voters. And it's up to only Biden to do something about that issue. They need to get him out there. Well, what do you think is the most effective way to get him out there? Because, you know, we've seen him um, make speeches with the United Auto Workers. You know, he's gone around the country. Now, as I look at his schedule on a daily basis, um, it seems that a lot of his time is spent fundraising. You know, I'm, you know, I think all day tomorrow he's going to be in Palm Beach and Miami for quote unquote yeah. campaign events. Um, but what would be the most effective way for him to get out there, do you think? God, I wish, Joan, I wish I could run his campaign. They'd never hire me. But Joe Biden has always been a great retail politician. I would get him out there constantly meeting people, shaking hands. I want him off the cuff. I I know Joe Biden makes a lot of mistakes and butchers names and makes gaffes. He's done that, by the way, his whole career. But, But I'd get him out there in front of the camera informally, constantly, I want to hear Joe Biden say to the I I want to hear Biden embrace how old he is. 
I want them to have fun with it. I want to hear Biden before a camera say, damn it, you know what? I forget names constantly. Uh, I'm going to make mistakes every now and then. I need two naps every single day. But I'm 81, but doggone it, look what what we've done. Mm -hmm. I think they need to embrace this and have fun with his age, or it's going to be a real issue. Just recently, I've seen glimmers of that, where he's made this argument that um, I'm not old, I'm experienced, you know, kind of a thing. Or I am old, and that means I'm experienced is actually more what what they've been saying. So I I have seen glimmers of that. I wouldn't say as of yet it's a a major talking point. Um, But I think you're absolutely right. And I think part of the problem, and I've probably, I apologize if you've listened to me rant about this before. Part of the problem is... I don't think he is always shown in the best light. I agree with you. When he is out and about with people, he's at his best. When they put yeah. him in front of a podium at the White House, I think I he's badly like I lit. Like I think yeah. he's I think that who's ever writing his speeches doesn't know which words to avoid because as a as a stutterer, there are words he has trouble yeah. with. And when he slows yeah. down to say them correctly, it doesn't do his overall image any favors. I think that, you know, I mean, somebody pointed out to me that um, especially in the later years, Reagan's people really handled him. You know, yes, he might yeah. he might be on camera, but it was for just a few minutes and he would introduce the person who was going to explain whatever issue it was they were there to talk about. He was managed. He was handled. And I don't see anybody doing that for Joe Biden. Uh, right. I agree with that, Joan. But I, I and I but I agree with your main point, which is I would get him out there. I'd get him out there informally doing his retail thing. I wouldn't try to put a clamp down on him. I'd let Joe be Joe. Joan, we all have a parent who's 81 or a grandparent who's 81. We all know what the deal is. I mean, so so I think the American people would love it. This is an this is a big elephant in the room and it needs to be addressed or an insurrectionist could get reelected. I am very concerned about that. If it were just uh, Trump and Biden, I think that would be tough enough and tight enough. But I'm also very concerned about Robert Kennedy Jr. Um, I'm concerned about no labels. Um, The guy who founded No Labels actually came out recently and said, you know, I was one of the people who launched this effort. I now don't think it's a good idea. Uh, I'm backing away from it. And I think the only thing it's going to accomplish is getting Donald Trump elected. But it is still, I mean, you know, our own favorite lawyer here in Chicago, Dan Webb, is the lawyer for No Labels. Um, yeah, I yeah. believe Bill Barr. I have no proof of this, but I'm sure Bill Barr is behind no labels as well. Um, and I'm very concerned about this. Um, what do you think we should do about these third party candidates? Uh, well, I, I agree with um, your premise and I agree with your conclusion on no labels and any other third party candidate. It's it's really pretty straightforward to me. And I, I talked about this on another radio show today. If you believe Donald Trump is unfit to be president and he needs to be beat, the only way you beat him is with one 
other alternative, one other option. So it's it's either Trump or Biden. Anytime you put another potential candidate in, a third party, an independent, no labels, whatever, it will take votes away from Joe Biden. Period. It will help Trump. Most of the big money in no labels has all been big Republican money. Mm-hmm. Uh, more, more and more people, Joan, are learning about this. So there's still a decent chance that no labels will not be able to put up a candidate. We'll know in the next couple months, but it's a real threat. Uh, Robert Kennedy Jr. is a real threat. These are all you you don't you don't want to give a voter. You want a voter to go in there and say Trump's Trump's an insurrectionist, but I'm bored with Biden. Oh, but I got to choose between the two. Okay, that's easy. He's old, but he's an insurrectionist. You don't want to add any other candidates into that mix. Mm -hmm. Have you heard of the reporting that uh, Donald Trump's people have reached out to RFK Jr. about being the vice president? Yes. And it's and it's true. And boy, those two deserve each other. I don't know that that he'd pick RFK Jr. But look, they're allies in this. And they're allied on a lot of issues. And they're both conspiracists. And it wouldn't surprise me at all. Are you concerned at all about, you know, there's more and more and more reporting. And honestly, I don't know if this is one of those stories that has been created by the media, just everybody copying everybody else, or if this is a real legitimate concern. Um, African-Americans, particularly African-American men, feeling that for some reason Joe Biden has done nothing for them and maybe RFK Jr. or or, or will be the one who, who I don't know, does whatever it is that, that they feel Joe Biden hasn't done. And I've even heard express the sentiment, well, Joe Biden hasn't done anything for me, so like I'm going to show him I'm going to vote for Trump instead. Have you are you following this story that African-American men are very disgruntled with Joe Biden? And what do you think of it? Yes. And it's always been there, Joan. Um, uh, Biden's always had greater support among African-American women his share of the African-American male vote has gone down with each election. Uh, Trump still gets a minority of them, but he's getting more and more of them. Trump's getting more and more of Latino men. This is a problem the Democrats have. Uh, Democrats have a problem with working class, white, black and brown men. But, Joan, you've identified that. Look, for Biden to win, he's got he's got to cobble together this Democratic coalition of, of African-Americans, uh, young people, right? Young people right now, for a lot of reasons, uh, Biden is rightly very pro-Israel. That whole issue bums out young people. My hope is that this year, everybody's going to come around to understand Biden ain't perfect. But my God, we can't put this other guy in the White House again. That's the, that's that's the big picture that I don't understand that people don't seem to see. You know, this whole flirtation with RFK Jr., this whole idea that, well, Joe Biden didn't do this. Joe Biden didn't do that. And do you think Donald Trump will be in your corner? Were you asleep last time he was president? That's what I don't understand. There's still so many people who somehow think that Donald Trump is all about helping the little guy. And I don't know where it comes from, Joe. Do you? Explain it to me, please. Yes. 
No, I, well, I, I do. Again, um, we and you and I have been around for a while. Things have flipped. Um, voters without a college degree, voters with just a high school degree, uh, have felt really like neither political party has been listening to them or taking care of them. Uh, they're angry at both political parties. More and more of these folks are voting Republican. A lot more of these folks, Joan, consider Democrats to be elites. Democrats are getting more wealthy suburban voters. So this thing has has really flipped. And you're right. Trump is just a demagogue and he throws BS at these people all the time. But a lot of these working class voters, Joan, and I hear this every day, they feel like the Democratic Party, Joe Biden, these elites, they're out of touch and they don't understand me. I hear that all the time. Again, this is this is part of what the Biden campaign has to do this year. And are these folks also telling you that they do feel that the Republican Party understands them? I mean, are they just a feeling unheard across the board or is there something about the Republican Party that makes them feel heard? Yeah, you know what it is, Joan? I hear and this it's for five years. This is what I've heard from these lower information voters, meaning they don't pay attention to this mm-hmm. stuff like you and I do every day. They work their butt off all week. They come home, they have a beer Friday night, a little time with the kids, maybe the wife, the husband on the weekend, and they, they, they look at the news maybe once or twice a week. I hear from these people the same thing every single day. Uh, Republicans are jerks, they're a-holes, they're, but, but Democrats are elites who don't understand me. And a lot of these people will end up voting for the jerk than the person who doesn't understand them. Like the price of gas is really high. It was a few years ago. What did the Democrats do? They talked about green energy and all this other stuff. Important. What Republicans talk about? Drill, baby, drill. Do something about the price of gas now. Um, so it's, it's like Democrats have a it's weird, Joan. Democrats have developed a real tone deafness to working class America. You know, um, in your in one of your recent uh, podcasts, um, you talked about Republicans being afraid. Uh, Joe has a podcast. It's called White Flag with Joe Walsh. I don't know who he's surrendering to. Could be me. Maybe Um, that would that would be that would be fine with me. Um, Anyway, um, you talked about Republicans being afraid. Explain to the listeners why. I don't remember the exact context. You mean afraid of episode three (laughs) eighteen? If you need to reference it. Um, I wish I'm I'm trying to remember. It was a lot about Ukraine and. um, Oh yeah, 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 Joan. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Like this. Like it. How crazy? And I say this as a former member of Congress. How crazy is this that, that that you tie? You put two totally different things in the same bill, like aid to Ukraine and and secure our border. The only reason Republicans are doing that is because Republicans are afraid to have a separate up or down vote on aid to Ukraine. Why? Because most Republican base voters don't want to support Ukraine. Donald Trump is anti-Ukraine. He's pro-Putin. Tucker Carlson, all the rest. So Republicans in Congress, Joan, are afraid to have just a straight up or down vote on Ukraine 
because they don't want to have to vote for it because their base doesn't want it. How sad is that? Just pathetic. So they don't want is sort of sounds like the same thing we're seeing about immigration. Um, By all accounts, there was an immigration, a border reform bill that was pretty close to being cooked. And all of a sudden, the word came on to Capitol Hill that Donald Trump didn't want anything. He didn't want Joe Biden to look like he was accomplishing anything. So please uh, do me a favor and uh, don't don't have this vote. Just just pull it. And that's what you know, I played a um, a sound clip from James Lankford, uh, the yeah. Republican senator from Oklahoma. He's like, hey, we're the ones who said. We're not going to vote on these funding bills for Ukraine unless we get border reform. So we got border reform as part of it. And now we're saying, oh, just kidding. I didn't mean it. It was just a joke. I first said, Joan, three years ago when I was campaigning against Trump in Iowa, um, my Mission Impossible primary challenge against Trump. I said my former political party is a cult. And, and, and here we are three and a half years later. This is what it is. They will not vote on reforming what we do at the border because their cult leader, Donald Trump, told them not to. Period. And that's why House Republicans will not even consider it. It has nothing to do with the substance of the issue. Daddy, daddy cult leader said, don't do it. And they won't. Well, that's that's certainly what we're hearing. Um, And 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 going along with that is this uh, impeachment of the head of Homeland Security, um, Mr. Mr. Mayorkas, which I frankly, up until recently, didn't pay a whole lot of attention to because I thought, oh, it's just, you know, it's another Matt Gates, Marjorie Taylor Greene talking point. And all of a sudden it's actually happening. I mean. The orange god is mandating that everybody dance to his tune, and they're doing it. So here's the the, the good news and the bad news. The, the good, I'll start with the good news. The good news for everybody listening to us right now, and I say this as a former Republican, Democrats will take back control of the House in November. That is just absolutely clear. They're going to win the House again. Um, because this is what Joan Republicans promised us they'd do if we gave them the House. They told us this. They told us they were going to investigate everybody and try to impeach everybody. It was all going to be two years of retribution for, again, how they felt their dear leader was treated. And to give them credit, they've delivered on it because this is all they've done. Um, Now, I will say, though, Joan, one issue, the border is a huge issue. Joe Biden really messed things up on the border when he came in three years ago. We can get into that later. But here we are now. Biden's trying to do something about it. And Republicans won't lift a finger because of politics. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I think that there could be some some backlash to this because this isn't as i was saying at the beginning of the show today this whole deal isn't going down behind closed doors we know that that a border deal was on the table we know that donald trump pulled the plug on it and i think that that's there's got to be a segment of the population that reacts badly to that kind of nonsense but remember 
the average voter doesn't pay attention to this. The Uh average voter right now, the average voter right now knows that it's really things really suck at the border and they've been sucking for a long time. And when Biden came in, he kind of welcomed everybody and they've been coming. And that's about that's about it. And most average voters believe Republicans are tougher on the border because Republicans and I used to do this. We demagogue the border really, really well. And Democrats haven't paid enough attention to it. And by the way, Joan, now you've got Chicago, New York, Denver, all these Democratic run cities where these Mm -hmm. migrants have been placed. And now you've got these Democratic mayors complaining. Hello, excuse me, where were you? So this is a bad issue for Democrats. It really is. I wish Joe Biden, though, would get more aggressive with it. Forget the Republicans. Okay, they're not going to pass a bill. Damn it. I'll I'll do a lot on my own to secure the border. Biden could do that. You think so? He, well, he's got the authority to do plenty on the border by himself. I wish he'd do it. He's afraid, Joe, Joan, of angering his left flank if he comes across as too strong on the border. Politically, I think it would really help him with people in the middle because it's it's not just Republican base voters who care about the border. Joan, I'm hearing from some good Democratic friends in and around Chicago who are are, are tired of, of of this problem. And now we've got 40 some thousand migrants in the city of Chicago. I mean, this is a problem. I'm speaking with uh, Joe Walsh. <clears throat> Excuse me. Sorry about that. Uh, former Illinois congressman. Uh, currently, you can catch him regularly on his podcast, White Flag with Joe Walsh. Joe and I are going to take a break, a brief break for news, and then we are going to come back and talk about interesting things like Nikki Haley when we come right back after this. Joan Esposito, live. Celebrating our power to bring about change. Local. Everybody has to work together. And progressive. I think you get the idea. On WCPT 820. I am pleased to be joined by former Illinois Congressman Joe Walsh. You can hear him on his podcast, White Flag with Joe Walsh, The Bravery Project. Uh, bravery is hey, not. Joan, can I say something? Please, Joe, please say anything. You, you know what? <laughs> Just take over. You be the host no, and no, you ask no, me no, questions. No, I, <laughs> no, really. I say this is Jonas. I say this is Jonas Esposito's biggest cheerleader. You know what's so cool about this? Six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen years ago, you and I disagree on most things politically. You and I would have argued about stuff. We would have been on the opposite <laughs> sides of things. But because of what's happened the last seven years and this threat to democracy and how crazy my former party's become, Joe Walsh and Joan Esposito are allies locking yep. locked arms defending democracy. It's cool. <laughs> It is cool. And my listeners love when you're on the radio with me. Uh, And I do try to talk to people with more conservative points of view. Uh, Just uh, just uh, yesterday I had Paul Vallis on and I always get I always get a lot of uh, feedback. Why do you have him on? You know why he's too conservative. But I think it's important to listen to all kinds of, of voices. And I'd like to Amen. think that even if your, if your party ever becomes normal again, that we could continue to have conversations. 
I mean, Bingo. you know, I, I, I can disagree with Greg Hines and I disagree all the time. And I love to have him with me on the radio. Yeah. Agreed. Uh, Agreed. It's always a lot of fun. Um, I want to talk to you about Nikki Haley. Now, she's got that Coke pack money. So who knows uh, how long they'll tell her to stay in the race. But my question is, when she finally does bow out, how long do you think it'll take her to endorse Donald Trump? Immediately. <laughs> Joan, I, I, hope, I hope everybody listening to us understands how this is going to end. Um, Nikki Haley has no path. Uh, she's never had a path to the nomination. This nomination was always going to be Donald Trump's. As soon as Nikki Haley gets out, and I still expect her to get out, before South Carolina. Really? That's her home state. Oh, yeah, Joan. That's her home state. And right now, Trump is up like 50, 60 points on her. That is a big Trump state. If I'm advising Nikki Haley, I don't want to get humiliated in my home state. To me, she gets out within the next two weeks, and she immediately, warmly, and enthusiastically embraces Donald Trump. Because, Joan Esposito... That's what you have to do if you want to stay a viable Republican. You can go the Joe Walsh, Adam Kinzinger route and publicly oppose Trump. But if you do that, you're done as a Republican. Nikki Haley doesn't want to do that. Okay, but I also think that if you're taking money from the Koch Republican PAC, I think that you are also listening to them and they are giving you, if not full-fledged marching orders, a strong encouragement to do something or not do something, to say something or not say something. Don't you think she'll stay in the race as long as they want her in the race? And maybe they no, want her to just be a thorn in Donald Trump's side. Yeah, I kind of think it's the other way around. And I kind of believe that Look, after Iowa and New Hampshire, especially after New Hampshire for Nikki Haley, all the big Coke money and all the big Republican donor money now now realizes we can't stop Trump. It made sense to try to stop Trump at every stage of this thing. But I said months ago, it's Trump's. But the big donors weren't there yet. After New Hampshire, they're there. They'll keep giving her a little bit for as long as she wants to stay in. Uh, they don't want Joe Biden to win in November. So and, and so Nikki, again, they know they know Nikki Haley's got to be careful. She can't be anti-Trump or again, she's done as a Republican and the Koch money doesn't want her to be done as a Republican. OK, she's done as a Republican in the short term, but 2028 I mean, don't you think Donald Trump will be out of the picture by 2028? Won't we have moved on from him? I'm not sure. I mean it, Joan. I mean it. Um, if he's if he's reelected in 2024, and by the way, if he's reelected in 2024, I'll stay on your show, but I'm going to be in Portugal, so you're going to have to. Oh, honey, gonna I'm going to be in, in Canada, so you know, forget it. <laughs> Ray and I but have already Trump talked is, about this, where we're going if he gets reelected. Yeah. I can't live through yeah. another four years of that. I know I should feel like I will stay and fight the good fight, but I'm too old. I'm too old for this crud. No, 
you, you and I are no longer 30 years old. Let 30-year-olds fight the good fight. <laughs> um, if he's reelected, Joan, if he's reelected, he can only serve one term. But you and I know he will try to stay in office. But, but even 2028, if, if, you're, if you're a public never-Trumper, an anti-Trumper as a Republican, even if Trump's out of the picture, you're unelectable. We always forget this. We think it's just Trump. It's it's Republican voters like they they're they're MAGA. They're Trumpy. And so they they will decide who the next Republican is. And they wouldn't forgive a Joe Walsh or an Adam Kinzinger or a Nikki Haley or a Liz Cheney if if they went full on anti-Trump. You know, you talk to a lot of people on all sides of all issues. Yeah. I saw a reporter, they must have been at some Trump rally, and they were specifically asking the people there how they would feel about Trump if he's a dictator. And there were half a dozen sound bites back to back to back, you know, and one guy was saying, you know, well, sometimes, you know, kids need a stern hand and that's what Donald Trump would yeah. be. And other people saying, you know, yeah, he should be a dictator. We need a we need a strong person. Yeah. I'm not worried about, you know, losing democracy. Donald Trump, you know, if he wants to be a dictator, he should be a dictator. Do you hear those kinds of comments and where do they come from? Do they do those people really understand what they're asking for, Joe? Joan, I hear those comments every day, and I've heard those comments every day for the past six to seven years, and nothing makes me more sad than those comments because they come from my former friends, my former supporters, and my former listeners and followers. And the fact that these folks who supported and loved me openly embrace a strong man and authoritarian goes against everything I thought they believed in certainly goes against what I believed in, but it makes me so sad. I understand why Joan, because these are people who believe their America has uh, left them that we are in an America that they didn't want. And they believe Joan that the democratic process cannot get them their America back. And so they believe that only a strong man, a dictator, can do it. Um, they, they, it's like you and I have talked about this before, Joan. They've got this mythical notion of 1954 America, where men married women, women married men. There were two genders. You could say Merry Christmas. The plant that your dad worked at was in town. Uh, all, all the rest. They want that America back, uh, right, uh, uh, more of a Christian country, um, and they just don't believe democracy can get that country back for them. So, dictator, go get it for us. So it is about where did all, you know, now I'm surrounded by all these gay people and gay books and, and you know, and, and you know, black and brown people, and it's... It really is like fear based. It's Joan. It's remember who we're talking about. And again, I say this. These are my people. These are my former supporters. 
we're primarily talking about middle-aged and older white folk. And life, Joan, the last 30 to 40 years has been changing almost daily. And their heads are spinning. Um, We forget, Joan, that only 12 or 13 years ago, Barack Obama, Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton opposed opposed same-sex marriage. Mm -hmm. We forget that. So things have changed really, really quickly. They don't understand the change, Joan. And you're right. It does scare them. America used to be more white and more Christian. It's changing. That scares them. And, and, and Joan, one more thing I'll say is my party ignored these people for years uh, and, and wouldn't listen to them and laughed at their concerns and dismissed their concerns. And you've heard me apologize for this very publicly. People like me came along and inflamed them. And, and then, so we kind of set the, the soil perfectly for a demagogue like Trump to totally fool them. I hate it when you make sense. <laughs> it's Especially when you're every saying things I'm I don't want to hear. Uh, well, and every time I'm with you, I want to go drink my tequila after I'm with you. <laughs> Tell me about it. Tell me about it. Um, we have had a number of callers desperate to get into this discussion. Uh, let's let's let a few of them in. Jim is calling in from Chicago. Hey, Jim, you're on with me and Joe Walsh. Go ahead. Hi, hi Joe. You sound like an Iraq Rib Republican to me. I don't think you've ever changed. <laughs> uh, you've got Thanks. you've Thanks, got uh, what you, uh, all I can think of is is Reagan and his racist uh, propaganda during his campaign with the welfare queen and the fur coat drinking Don Perry on and living the high life. And then on the Willie Horton we, the, and this governor we just ran for governor at the plants are going to attack us and kill us and, and so on and so forth. You know the Linda Johnson in private conversation said he's going to turn the uh, the South Republican because of race. And the people in rural areas and in, 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 uh, the rural areas of the southern states, they don't want to be uh, it's, it's such construction. They don't want to have anything to do with uh, people of different color running for office. Yeah. And you've got a criminal. You've got a complete criminal, which the laughing part about it is. You've got a complete criminal running for president for the Republican Party. I mean, a total criminal. And, and, and real quick, what I called eventually was just the axiom for Shakespeare, all the world's a stage. And Trump, I could picture Trump in the child line at Folsom Prison with a, with a you know, an ancient camera while he's taking <laughs> the bologna sandwiches. I mean, this guy can't get off a camera. Anyway, so thank you for that. Because I think I think we're gonna I think we're gonna we're gonna kill him. Let's leave it that way. Okay, Joe. Thank you. Um, thank you, brother. Thank you, brother. Jim said something that um, that I want to comment on. I have said this repeatedly. You know, some people are saying, "Oh, well, it'll things will be different if Donald Trump is convicted, and you know, if he's like sent to jail or given a sentence." I don't think that there is a jury or a judge in this land 
that would, even if he is convicted, that would sentence Donald Trump to any kind of jail or prison time unless the election is over and he has lost. As long as he is still a candidate, I think he is guaranteed to maintain his freedom. I mean, come on, who wants to be the judge that sends a presidential candidate to jail? No, that's not happening. I don't I don't see it. I completely agree, Joan, and I'll go you one further. I don't think there'll be any conviction before the election. I don't think any of these trials will be completed before the election. Um, and I'm look, Joan, I if the election were held tomorrow, Donald Trump wins. Remember, we'll forget about the popular vote. We don't do that here. Mm-hmm. Um, electorally, electorally, Trump is ahead right now. Nine months is a long time, but Trump is in really strong position right now. And all of this legal crap he's going through, I think, helps him. And not just with his base. And not just with his base. This is a real problem. Democrats need to get their butts together. I agree with you. I think that... um And God knows, I mean, what's been the report? Every time he faces a new indictment, you know, within 24 hours, he's raised an additional, you know, couple million dollars off of it. Um, I am I'm very I'm very frightened of what's happening and what may be happening because of that stupid electoral college that I don't know why we even still have. And, you know, I don't know what it's going to take to get rid of it, but I certainly would support getting rid of it a thousand percent because it is minority rule. I mean, it is uh, a few states that have a very slim population can dictate the federal government to the rest of us who live in states that have many times over the population. It's just uh, it made maybe it made sense at one point, but it sure doesn't make sense anymore. Um Let's go back to the phone lines. Jerry's calling in from Richton Park. Hey, Jerry, you're on with me and Joe Walsh. Thank you. Hello, Joan, and your guest. Uh, first, let me say this. This is not the being indicted. It's not crap. It's real. This guy did this thing, these things. Number two, what we get a lot of times is we get the media not reporting what is going on with this individual. When I look up on the regular media, all I see is um, conversations going back and forth from Donald Trump. That's true. And then with Joe Biden, all you got to do is take a look at what this man is doing. I'm not talking about the great things he's doing. He knows how to time what he's doing. He don't jump out and say, I'm going to do this because everybody said it. He knows what he's doing. I've been doing this myself since I was 16. And that was... 60 years ago, and I'm still very much active in this. So I know what's going on. And the polls that you're talking about, if you've been around for any time, you know these polls have never been right. You know, when you had the great red wave coming, that didn't happen. Other polls, you got to go by what the people feel. And the other big thing that I have is that when I hear you say black men lean toward Trump, that's a lie. That's not true. If you look at the election, the election with Joe Biden and uh, uh, Trump, you'll see that 82% of African-American men voted for Joe Biden. Right. 
percent of black women. Eighty-eight percent of black women voted for the, right, uh, Joe right, Biden. Right, right, right. Jerry, it's you're right. to say that we're the Hang on, Jerry. Uh, Joe we're wants to, to make a point here. Hang on, give him a second. Jerry, Jerry, you're right. What I said was Trump is increasing his share of the African-American male vote. It's still the minority, but he's increasing his share uh, much more than with African-American women. That's a concern. I live out here with African-American men and women. I'm very, very much involved with politics. I do it all the time. I don't see that. I see people on television saying that, but I don't see that. And like well, you know, Jerry, say, I, um, I got to say one thing. We don't get that phone I call. hope, we don't get you know, that I'm glad. Call. Hang on a second, Jerry. I'm glad that's what you see. I really, truly am. But I can tell you, um, if you listen to Santita Jackson's show, uh, there's a lot of people who a lot of African-Americans who call in to Santita's to Santita Jackson's show here 6 a.m. to 8 a.m. And a lot of those folks are not happy with the way things are and who's yeah. in charge. And it really makes me very, very nervous to hear those I kinds of things to- and and to hear them talking up RFK and. It's um. I'm so glad that no, you have a different to, experience with that. I, I really, truly, I really, truly am. But I, I like Mr. Walsh. I'm a little bit concerned about it. Um, Jerry, we got to I want to try to get one more call in. So thank you, thank you for sharing with us. Um, let's let's go to Roosevelt. Uh, Andy, is he, Roosevelt still on the line? Okay, Roosevelt, yeah, you're on with uh, me thanks, and Joe Walsh. Thanks. Thank you for taking my call, Joan. Hey, Joe, how you doing? Roosevelt, man, good to talk to you. <laughs> hey, man, I miss, I miss your show. I'm, I miss you calling in. You know, once I opposed Trump, they took my show away, doggone it. Uh, yeah, I remember. Hey, listen, uh, it was a, a, a bit of a conflict because you used to be on at the same time my favorite shows in the afternoon, such as Joan and... Uh, I'm Patty Vasquez, uh, but uh, I still will listen to you, you know, and uh, I really you, miss Thank you. We, we used to get into it. <laughs> <laughs> I want to ask you guys both a question. How much of, and you, you briefly spoke about the young vote. How much of an impact do you guys think uh, Taylor Swift, Saturday Night Live, <laughs> well, you uh, know, Joe Roosevelt, is this is a perfect question vote. for Joe, because uh, apparently Republicans now believe that Taylor Swift and Travis Kelsey, oh, that's it is some sort of psyop operation. Did you know that, Joe? It is like um, the, it's I don't know if the CIA is behind it or who, but it's not real. And it's and, and the point of it. Well, I'm not quite sure why it's a PSYOP operation, and I'm not quite sure what the point of it is, but, you know, it's definitely, we don't like it. If you're a Republican, you don't like it. <laughs> Joan, why, explain to me, why would anybody declare war on Taylor Swift? I don't know I why don't they're doing know. this. It's crazy. It's I crazy. think in some circles, I think the fear is that um, because she has such an ardent following, that if she does something like endorse Joe Biden, that that potentially could be a problem. I think that is the oh. only argument that comes close to making any kind of sense. Oh, stupid. Just politically stupid. <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, interesting. Oh my gosh. Um, so, you know, one of these <laughs> days when, you know, because I'm old and I have lots of medical tests and things, you should you should fill in on this show. You know, I understand I that you're, you know, I want that. You should do it. It would be so much fun, you know, and I do have to warn you uh, that we're a very what? small operation and it won't be those cable news dollars. <laughs> it will be, you know, how we always make fun about fun about radio money and how radio money yeah. is. It's not like <laughs> it's not like money you make at any other job. Well, radio money squared is what you get at WCPT. But I think you no, would have would such that. fun. It would be so terrific. Hey, you're the one that can make that happen. I would be honored to. I'm a, I'm a longtime radio guy. I love radio. I miss it. Radio is, it, it is tremendous fun. It is just, it is yeah. just the best. And you, you get to talk with some of the most interesting people, including you, Mr. Walsh. And I would love to see you here. And I am going to... I'm going to start lobbying for that and uh, plant that seed. Plant that seed. I will. Jonas, I will plant that seed and I will nurture it. I won't just plant best. it and walk away. But you know, <laughs> um, if we have to do a broadcast line to Portugal, that could be a deal breaker. Of course, by then I'll be in Canada, so I don't know. Maybe it won't be a deal breaker after all. You and I will work our fannies off this year to make sure he's not oh, back God. in the White House. Oh God, I, I, I will. I'll do. I'll do whatever it takes, Joe. And I hope you'll be with me every step of the way. You're the best. I love Joan Esposito. I love her. <laughs> Thank you, Mr. Walsh. Uh, that's Thanks, uh, that's uh, our segment. We're going to take a break, and I'm going to be back with uh, former CBS News LA Deputy Bureau Chief Bruce Rines when we come right back after this. You know what time it is? Hello. Can you hear me? It's time to return to the best progressive talk show in Chicago. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. Now on WCPT 820. And I am joined by my good friend, Bruce Rines, former CBS News Deputy Bureau Chief in Los Angeles. Bruce, how are you? I'm well, Joan. How are you? I'm good. I want to reveal to the audience something that um, that we all know. When you work, especially in television, full-time, it is really hard to just retire and do nothing. Most people, I, I mean, I don't know if you saw the post from um, Jim Avila. Jim Avila used to be a reporter at Channel 7, went on to be a network reporter, retired recently, started writing a column for one of um, the newsletters. And then all of a sudden, one day he posted, retirement is boring. I'm going back to work. I'm now part of the investigative team for, I think, one of the San Francisco stations. And oh, my. Uh huh. So he is now back working uh, full time as an I team lead investigator for a local news station in San Francisco. And you listening, you might be wondering where I'm going with this. Um, Bruce Rines also was not the sort of person to just 
retire and put his feet up and read books and watch television and do nothing? Well, sometimes, but yes, sometimes he, I do. <laughs> he has created a very different sort of career for himself. Would you like to tell the listeners, Bruce, what you've been doing since retirement? I think career is doing a lot of work in that sentence, uh, Joan. It's it's mainly it's a way for me to get out of the house every once in, once in a while. I work uh, occasionally as since I live in Los Angeles, and uh, the the law here is that if you're not otherwise occupied, that you have to become an extra in a in movies and TV shows. So every once in a while, I appear as a very blurry person in the background of some TV show for two or three seconds. First of all, I he is minimizing it. He does a lot. He is highly in demand. He is highly in demand, not only for his amazing ability to be in the background, but he owns his own tuxedo, which, as I understand it, earns him an extra $15 a day. Is that true? That's right. Every time you wear it. Yeah, that's right. It's a wardrobe bump, they call it. Really a wardrobe bump. I like I like that. So I was really puzzled and I, I promise I will talk about important things at some point. But I have I have I haven't talked to you for a while. You recently posted on social media and what Bruce does uh, when he does one of these um, jobs as an extra, he grabs stills as the program airs where he's in the background and he circles his head and points an arrow to his body so that he can share with his friends the fact that, you know, here he is again in another in another, in another show, but doesn't make us actually do the work of trying to find him. Yeah. Oh, that would be a weird. Where's Waldo uh, times two? man? <laughs> but I was very curious because you posted a picture recently of some background work you did on the new Mandy Patinkin show, Death and Other Details, and you said you shot it three years ago. What happened? Was it on the shelf? September of uh, 2021 is when we shot that, and that was the pilot. So I think that they were like... uh, they wanted before they shot more episodes. They wanted to circulate it around to see what interest there might be for a, for a full season. I think it finally got picked up in 2022, like mid 2022 or something, by Hulu, and um, they started writing and shooting episodes then. And then you know, getting things ready, and then the strike was imminent, and then the strike happened. So I think it was held back. You know, in order to uh, to have some content for whenever the strike ended, that there'd be new content uh, for for people to watch. So, I think it's mostly a uh, a, a marketing type of uh, position that was taken. But and also, it just takes a long time to get things together. Mandy Patinkin, you know, he's he goes on concert tours and things like that. His schedule is probably hard to work around as well to finish off uh, to finish off the show. So, but anyway, that's uh, it's not unusual for something to be shot several years before before it hits before it hits the really? air or streaming. Yeah. And um do you always I mean you're an extra which I know is not exactly high on the um totem pole. Do they even let you know if your episodes are going to be airing? No. Just- 
you just got to uh, just keep you know reading the trades, reading the trade papers and things like that to see when uh, something else is going to something I was on if I can remember it <laughs> is going to was uh, was going to be uh, finally finally aired. There was another show that I, uh, I I that just aired that I did three years ago. It was called Chad. Um, it stars Nassim Pedrad as the. Uh, uh, she's, she plays a 14-year-old boy in this show. It's a very, it's very, very funny show. Season one was on TBS. And then the day before season two was supposed to air, in 2022, TBS canceled it. So uh, she shopped it around, and the Roku channel you know, finally picked it up. And then it's just finally now airing now on the Roku channel in 2024, uh, three years after I shot, uh, I shot the, an episode for them. I always find that really weird. Um, David Zaslov did a lot of that stuff that was already shot, stuff that was near to completion that he just pulled the plug on. And I guess it was a business decision because by not airing it, he could like take a loss on what yeah. they what they had done. Because, um, you know, if the second season was about to air, I assume most of the second season was already shot. I never understand when they've got something in the can and and then they go, eh, you know what? Nah, we're not we're not going to do that. It just doesn't make I know, any it seems sense. Counterintuitive. To me. Yes. Right. I mean, you know, what, what's the, the harm in airing it? And you've, you've already also pre-sold commercials for it. So, uh, you know, what, what's the what, what? Why not air it? But you know, it's a tax decision. He can do a tax write-off, and also in Zaslov's case uh, uh, with Warner Brothers, they are the the thinking is that that there's too much content now on television and we have to to shrink down the amount in order to make the stuff that is aired uh of better quality and 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 more anticipation for it so i think that's part of his plan i don't think i don't know you can agree or disagree whether that's a valid argument but uh, i think that's what's uh, what's in his mind well, I think he should uh, talk with me because when Ray and I uh, yeah. sit down, right. I mean, Ray and I, there's there's a fair number of shows that we really like, but everybody seems to have gotten away. I love the Netflix model. Drop all the episodes at once. Let me binge it. Um, but, you know, even Netflix is starting to get away from that. And so you've got just like old fashioned TV. When I was growing up, you get one episode a week. And Ray and I are always sitting there going like, OK, well, we're all caught up. What are we going to watch? What are we going to watch? Yeah. And I don't feel that there's too much content. I feel that there's not enough content. But also part of it is so much of the content doesn't seem to be <laughs> aimed at my demographic. Yeah. yeah, I agree, you know, but, you know, although there's more and more like this, this show, Death and Other Details, you know, with Mandy Patinkin, who's in the 70s and, uh, and starring in the show, and it's set on a cruise ship, which is definitely our demographic. So, uh, <laughs> uh, but, you know, it, it's, it's funny, though, that, you know, I just was uh, watching something on <clears throat> Amazon uh, last night, and then a thing came on afterwards saying, well, if you still want ad free Amazon, it's now $3, $2.99. Uh, a month to uh, eliminate ads. And that's all the streaming uh, services, I think, are just, they're worrying about the cost of producing stuff and uh, not enough people offsetting it with subscriptions. So so everything is going with ads now, which is uh, kind of regrettable because it was just nice watching things yeah. for, you know, straight through without an ad in, in the middle but, or know, the beginning or 
even the shows that I do watch with no ads, you can tell that they have shot them and edited them with ads in mind because you'll be watching yeah. and a scene ends and all of a sudden it goes dark and then it comes up yeah. again. And you know darn well that's exactly where the commercial break is going to be. And um, since I'm probably not going to pay that extra two ninety nine, I guess I should enjoy it while it lasts. Yeah, just a second of black was tolerable, I guess, for a second. Mm-hmm. So of all the shows you've been on, what 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 experience did you have the most fun with? Uh, let's see. Well, um, it was nice being I was on uh, had a, the last scene of uh, the season, the series finale of uh, The Big Bang Theory is where uh, Sheldon and, and Amy won a Nobel Prize. And I was uh, one of the. 50 members of the Nobel Prize Committee in Sweden. So, you know, and we were all in white tail and white white tie and tail. So that was a uh, it was fun wow. to do, and it was fun just being on the set. You know, it was, it was the last scene shot of the of that show, so it was kind of emotional for everybody. It was, wow. nice. it was interesting to be on that show. Um, but you know, I've had there's other things. You know, like I've done a couple of episodes of Nine One One where you have to run for your life from some disaster or something like that, and it's you're just running back and forth. <laughs> <laughs> I watched that show. I, I did. I no. guess I missed those posts. No, no. Uh, some plane crashed and uh, on one time and. Um, Something was a fire or so. No, it was an explosion at City Hall that we had to run down the steps from. <laughs> that is uh, that is that is so cool. I really enjoyed you on uh, the Jeff Bridges show. Is that called The Old Man? I think The Old Man. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. that was one of Ray and Mai's favorites. And that was a that looked like that was a pretty glamorous day. Well, it, you know, hey, that that thing was a, it was a, it was a party setting. And it was supposed to be in Morocco, and we held it up in uh, it was a, a suburb outside of Los Angeles. Was where that some big house uh, uh, was, was where we shot it. But uh, for that scene, which was about in length, about oh I don't know maybe five minutes or six minutes or something like that, we shot for five days. Oh my <laughs> and god! It was, uh, yeah, and it was, and we were out in the sun. There was no shade or anything like that, and it was the sun from, and we were there from before dawn until after dark for five days shooting shooting that one scene. Okay, I take that back. Um, it well, it, <laughs> oh, it, it fun, edited it right. together yeah. very glamorously. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. We, you know, you can't tell the difference from the first day of shooting to the last day of shooting, and you know, the same wardrobe and a little bit more sweat and the things like that. Huh. Well, it's always fun to watch you, and of all of us who've retired and, and gone back to work, you have done it in the most interesting way of anybody I know. Yeah, but, it, you know, I try not to take it too seriously. I mean, it is just, you know, a second in the back of a, of a scene. You know, it's just, it's fun for me to be back on the set of a TV show and stuff and, you know, be around that and everything like that. And it's nice to get out of the house when you're retired every once in a while. But, uh, you know, I don't take it too seriously. Well, maybe someday um, they'll give you a line to say, and no, then your no. name will be in the credits. No, that would be AI if they do that. They'll, like, insert somebody's voice in my uh, in my face. That's not true. That's not true. I do also want to talk to you as somebody who has um, spent the majority of their career in journalism. I want to talk to you about how you think 
um, the national media is doing so far in reporting on this presidential race? Uh, from what I can see, from the national media that I can see, they, it's just like they still they think they've learned their lesson from uh, 2016, but and 2020, but they haven't. It, it's I think there is still not enough attention paid to the incredible anti-democratic authoritarian impulses of Donald Trump, and he's being still being treated these as like Republicans. These MAGA Republicans are equal in their attitude toward America as the rest of us. And yes, they do have the same, each one still has the same vote as ever, as everyone else. But it's like they don't understand what this country really, you know, was about and how, and, and how we need to develop our country and the, and the process of, of, of progressing. And, uh, you know, it, it's it, paying fealty to this guy is just a, it's, it's horrifying to see. And it's horrifying to see the national media kind of res- of uh, reporting still kind of straight about Donald Trump. And they make mention of his, you know, slurs and his, and things that he says in his, his speech, but it's not really dissected and put into this proper context as far as I can tell. And it's, and that's really discouraging. And it's also discouraging about, uh, you know, I think you can talk about uh, President Biden's age, but to uh, equate it with some sort of infirmity, which has not really been identified or, uh, or evident is uh, I think kind of, uh, you know, trying again, trying to do the, uh, to, to play both sides down the line and in this case there's not a down the line uh down the middle of the road uh equivalence yeah um on our uh, heartland signal uh website we post um we we post commentary essays and other news items and uh somebody who you might remember from local news uh jennifer schulze now writes opinion pieces for heartland signal and she just posted one um, because we do a media segment once a month, Mark Jacob from the Trib and the Sun-Times and her and me. And one of the things that we've talked about is, God help us, we don't ever want to see reporters go to another diner ever again. Particularly yeah, like, like let's yeah, let's talk to these Trump voters here at the diner. And she wrote an opinion piece that said, you know, there are a lot of Biden voters around, but we don't see anybody go into the diner to talk about Joe Biden. We don't see the stories about Biden voters like we do about Trump voters. Do you think that's a blind spot or do you think that's on purpose? I don't think it's on purpose. I think it's just, you know, laziness. It's a reflexive thing. You're in Iowa. Let's go to the diner because there's nothing else around. They don't have a lot of Starbucks. They have a few in Des Moines and a couple of the other big cities. But it's mostly like these little small town diners. And, you know, I don't know who goes to a diner, a bunch of retired farmers and, and uh, you know, other people like that. And it's just it, it, one thing I was very happy about is the uh, having covered uh the primaries back when I was when I was working is that Iowa that the Democrats are eliminating Iowa as a starting point and eliminating uh, New Hampshire. Those are two very unrepresentative uh, states in this country. They're, they're 
great Americans, fine, fine Americans and things like that. But the makeup of those states does not reflect what the majority of Americans, even in the South, it's, it, they, they don't. It doesn't reflect it, and it's certainly not in most of the Midwestern uh, states. So, uh, so that's that's one good thing. But yeah, the going to the diner it's just it's so lazy, and it, you know it's just that's the place because it's a place where people hang out. But you know, get some find some some something else, anything else, mm-hmm. the bowling alley, something. Yeah, yeah, and and it's like um, I. I I've seen, you know, NPR when when Trump first was elected, NPR did a lot of these. Who are these Trump people? We must talk to them, which is fine. You know, you want to there's a demographic you've just discovered and you want to explore it. It was fine. But what used to drive me crazy and eventually they got some very public pushback for this is the reporters from NPR would talk to these folks and no matter what misinformation disinformation came out of their mouths the reporters never corrected them like you yeah. know they, the the people they'd be interviewing would say things that everyone uh, who had any paid attention at all knew were wrong and the reporters never said a word which in my opinion was a sort of a silent validation. If I don't interrupt you and say, well, that's actually not true. If I let it stand, the people watching my story are going to, in my opinion, think whatever was said was correct. Why? Because, well, obviously, if it wasn't correct, I would have said something. Now, wouldn't I have? And they didn't. And they got a lot of grief for that. And I think there's everybody is still doing this. Oh, Trump voters. Who are they? What do they want? What do they think? Oh, my goodness. It's like we've discovered uh, a new species of human being that we have to explore. And I, frankly, am tired of the exploration. We know a lot about these folks now, and a lot of it ain't good. Why is it still being done? And also, we know that, you know, if you're a a person at a Trump rally, they're not, you know, there's, they, they have made up their mind. There, there's nothing, we know what they are like, and there's nothing that, that they can say that makes you, other people think, oh, well, maybe they've got a good point. I mean, I am interested in hearing, I, which I did hear a few times in Iowa, some people who are supportive of, uh, either DeSantis or of, uh, Nikki Haley saying that they're going to vote for them, but then saying, well, what if in the general, it's General Donald Trump? What you know? What their opinion was, and there were so many of them that says, "Well, I'm just going to hold my nose and vote for Trump." That is interesting to me to hear what that what their rationalization is uh, for that. But as far as like going to a Trump rally and interviewing you know a bunch of people who just have you know are are kind of like living in an alternate reality, it's not elucidating. It it doesn't make sense. Mm Hmm. I. I agree 1,000% with that. Um, do you watch any of the Sunday news shows? You know, I uh, have not been uh, lately, and, uh, you know, I'll, I'll catch, a, you know, a, a bite or something online later or something like that, but I've been, I have been, been watching. I've been kind of uh, – I've never watched Meet the Press. I've been kind of turned off from uh, Chuck Todd and then and Kristen Welker, I don't think, is up to the job. I was that was so yeah. funny because that's where I was after after you answered this question I was going to ask you specifically about Kristen Welker. I don't know what the process was in choosing her for that role. 
Um, but either, you know, you know, sometimes I think when somebody gets a big job, they're very nervous. And so they listen too much. They don't follow their instincts. They listen too much to what other people tell them. Oh, you know, you know, you should, you don't be too tough. Don't be too this, you know, be more of that, be more of this. And sometimes I think that their natural instincts get buried or they don't have they, the confidence yet to say, you know, the heck with you, you're wrong. You know, this is something that I need to pursue further. And I don't know if, if that's the case with her, but I would say at the very least, she is erratic. Um, and there are, there, but you know, Elise Stefanik sitting across from her talking about the January 6th people who are facing trial and calling them hostages. And Kristen Welker just sat there. I don't get yeah. that. I don't, I don't either. And, you know, it's, I think maybe a lot of the problem, I think, besides what you just uh, pointed out, is that I think there, you know, there's a, Unfortunately, in America today, uh, the, the uh, MAGA, the, the extreme right, is quick to issue a death threat or do some swatting or something like that, and it piles up. And I think that subconsciously, in a lot of people's minds, you know, you think about that once you get a bunch of uh, death threats and everything like that. You know, I don't know about you, but we, when I was working, either me or the correspondent or the reporter, didn't get death threats from, from mm-hmm. people from, you know, if you reported toughly, if you were tough on something. So, uh, you know, but now that's like common, you know, very common. And we've seen a couple of episodes where uh, where people are, you know, they, they went so far as to build the bombs and were on their way to CNN and stuff like that. So, you know, I, I think that may have some some part of it, but it's just also again, again the, the the thinking of got to be down the middle. We're you know mm-hmm. we're, both sides are both sides have a valid point, and and, and, and they really don't. And in, in most situations like that, some people who are more cynical than you. Uh, have said it's a question of access. You don't want to be too tough on somebody because then maybe next time they won't come on your show. Or if if the word gets out that you're tough on Republicans, then no Republicans are going to want to go on your show. I think that's the most ridiculous argument. But I've heard that so much. And I believe that there are people, especially people, in management who are afraid that if i mean let's let's face it i mean you you know Mehdi hassan was probably the toughest interviewer out there and he has not had uh, a real successful career in the in the last several months um and and i think a lot of it is access as a matter of fact i don't have this in the array but i seem to recall chuck todd actually admitting that at a time I don't know who was interviewing him. And he said, sometimes I go easy on somebody because if I go too hard on them, they'll never come back. Yeah, yeah that's, you know, that's the, the, the Beltway Club, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, they'll, they'll see each other at the cocktail parties uh, later that night. And, uh, you know, it's, it's really it's really unfortunate. When you were I know that you um, did a lot of producing all around the world. Mm-hmm. When you were with CBS, did you um, ever do any work in D.C.? Or was it or did they mostly send you to the North Pole and the South Pole? Yeah. 
Yeah, DC was a very alien land uh, to us. Um, I uh, not when I was at CB. I mean, the, the Washington Bureau, and I think this is is true of all of the uh, each network's Washington Bureau. They are like an, an, an entity unto themselves, and they even resist any type of outside help unless uh, unless they really need it. So, uh, I. Uh, not with CBS. I never did any any DC work. Uh, a little bit when I was at I was at uh, local stations. Every once in a while, we went to uh, Washington to do some stuff, but uh, but not when I was at the network. Uh, for those of you uh, who don't understand the depths of Mr. Ryan's bio, when he worked for uh, CBS, is how many how many places did you do? Did you ever tally up how many places around the world you went? No, no. I mean, it was you know, it was a lot. But uh, you <laughs> well, know, haven't you been just, to like, both the, the, the top I, of the world and focus, the bottom of the world? Yeah. yeah, I just focus on the ones I remember, like that. And, you know, and I went to the Iraq War and all that stuff. But uh, uh, you know, I, I don't. I didn't. I don't have a running tally. I don't think of the of the passport stamps or anything like that. Well, um, I'd like to make a suggestion to you uh, that you well, go out. Uh, today and buy a journal and start writing some of that stuff down because it isn't those memories aren't going to be any clearer as you get older. Oh, I might hear that. <laughs> I've I've done that, you know, not I, I don't not somebody who journals every day. But when I've done something that's either part of a bucket list or something that I thought was really cool, I have over the years just jotted down um, things I've done. And, you know, it's really interesting. Every once in a while, like that journal falls out of the bookshelf. And so I, I peruse it. And it, it's wonderful to remember some of the interesting places you've been, some of the interesting things you've been able to do in your life. Um, especially, you know, if there's something going on in your life at that moment in time that is less than optimal. It, it reminds you that there were lots of good times. So um, I, I, sound, I sound like Tony Robbins or somebody. <laughs> so, Bruce, no, I would idea. strongly suggest that, you know, you write some of this stuff down. No, that's a good idea because, uh, you know, for many years all through my career, I just like felt like, you know, the piece that I produced was the record of, of the story. You know, it was the record of the, of the time that we, we spent. But you're right. There's a lot of stuff that happens you know, in the process of making that story that uh, uh, mm-hmm. should be at least at least something that I can remember, you know, in 20 years if I make it that, long, that far. <laughs> you will. Um, Bruce Rines and I are going to take a break so that we can all listen to the news. We will be back with more right after this. Joan Esposito, live, local and progressive on WCPT 820. And I am joined by former L.A. CBS Network News Deputy Bureau Chief Bruce Rines. We have been talking uh, a little bit about reporting and um, the kinds of problems that are on the horizon when it comes to telling the stories necessary for people to hear and read as we approach the next presidential election. There was um, a post on social media, again, 
Um, Jennifer Schulze from Heartland Signal is one of the first people to post this, and it's gotten uh, posted a lot recently. And it is, Bruce, it is a local reporter, the CBS station in Miami, talking, doing an interview with the uh, Florida Republican congressperson, Maria Salazar. And um, Ms. Salazar, like many Republicans in Congress, votes uh, voted against every uh, proposal, every bill uh, that was put forth by President Biden. You know, in infrastructure, build back better, et cetera, and so forth. And yet, like we've also seen from many Republicans, she went back to Florida and uh, started bragging to her voters about all these wonderful projects that were coming to their congressional districts, all this money that was coming to the people in her congressional district as if she were responsible for it. And the local reporter who was interviewing her wasn't rude, but they were persistent. They were relentless in trying to get her to talk about what really happened. I want to get your take on this, but first, uh, Andy, let's play that sound. Last month, you were at FIU and you presented a check for $650,000 to help small businesses at FIU. But you voted against the bill that gave the money that you then signed a check for and handed and had a photo op, the Consolidated Appropriations Act of 2023, right? You voted against that bill. I, I, right now, you have to give me more details, but I do know that every time I have an opportunity to bring money to my constituents, I do so. I well, just you remember, four, you, I just say four hundred thousand dollars. But look, well, let's you, go. but you voted against you voted against the Chips and Science Act, right? Listen, I, right now, I need to I need to ask my staff. But you know, what do no, we look you, at the forty million dollars that I have brought to this community? No, what's, what's, Aren't you proud of me? Aren't you proud of the forty million dollars that I brought? Much, but how Aren't much? you proud that I wrote the Dignity Act? Haven't I? Let's talk about the America's wait, Act. Wait, 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 let me one second. Tell me the money that you talk about, the forty million dollars that you bring back to the district. Sometimes that money comes from bills that you voted against. You voted against the CHIPS Act, and yet you praise the fact that the South Florida Climate Resilience Tech Hub is going to be started in Miami, right? You voted against the infrastructure bill, and you talk about all the money that comes back to the airport. So at the same time that you're taking credit for the money that you bring back to the district, in Washington, you're voting against these projects on party-line votes. Listen, I, that was, I think, last cycle. I cannot really remember right now, but just look, let's look at the America's Act, which is what I'm going to, which is so what I wanna, would like. You don't want to explain why I, you I vote really against cannot, I mean, right now, and I'm not trying to be a politician, there's so many bills that I've introduced that I know that no, no, many these are of bills them that you have voted against. The, that I understand. And, but they, it's, okay, sometimes I vote bills. and sometimes I don't. But let's look at the positive. Let's look at the $40 million that I've brought. Your thoughts on that interview, by the way, that uh, reporter was Jim. I think his name is Defeed, D-E-F-E-D-E, Defeed. And I think that that's how it should be done. What are your thoughts, Bruce? Good for Jim. I mean, you know, there's somebody who's like, you know, paying attention to local politics. And as you know, so often, especially now in local TV stations, Particularly, there is everybody has to be a general reporter, and there's not enough reporters that are uh, focused on local politics. And don't you know they they may be sent out, you know, after they uh, they 
cover some uh, air, you know uh, automobile accident in the morning, then in the afternoon go interview a congressman or something like that, and they're not prepared. This guy was prepared, which was great. We need more of that, but unfortunately, in local news these days, getting somebody who's just uh, can focus on local politics is. Uh, those are few and far between. And also, we have a problem here, especially in Los Angeles. So the L.A. Times uh, is being decimated. And uh, what was once a great newspaper is now an occasionally pretty good newspaper. And there's uh, less and less attention being paid to the uh, really important issues of the Southland. And, uh, and, and it's really a shame. And I imagine that since it's the same case all over the country. Uh, there is a uh, the, the, these local pa- papers are being uh, uh, nobody's reading them, and so they're 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 going away. And the local TV stations that rely on the papers to give them ideas about stories to do, especially in politics, now you know they don't they don't have anywhere to uh, to turn to. Yeah, and uh, how many people did the L.A. Times just lay off? Well, I think the last thing was, uh, I think they're down to about half of the, they're eventually going to get down to half of their, uh, half of their staff. It's in the, it's more than a hundred. And we, I'm sure you saw what happened with um, the Baltimore Sun, where um, it was Alden Capital, which uh, owns the Tribune, was either Mm -hmm. owned it or was trying to buy it, but uh, it went to a local guy. And I saw a post on social media that said, just because somebody buys your paper who's local doesn't mean that they're going to appreciate what you do. And the new owner had a three-hour meeting with the staff of the Baltimore Sun where he said things like um, he really only read a newspaper maybe three or four times a year. He really didn't uh, know anybody on staff. Um, There were definitely going to be cuts, and maybe the people in the room – could tell him who they thought was good, like they could rank um, their fellow reporters so he'd have an idea of, you know, like who to get rid of first. I mean, it was it was it was like something out of a novel, this um, this three hour meeting um, that they had. And he was telling them he owned a local TV station, I guess a couple of them that were part of the Sinclair group. And he was telling the people at the Baltimore Sun, which is a, had been a wonderful newspaper. Um, you know, if, you know, you should be more like my television station, you know, Fox 45. You know, you should, you should be more like them. And apparently it was just devastating and just, disheartening um what do you see happening on the front well, of local media well like here patrick sunshong is the uh billionaire the local he's a local guy from southern california billionaire who owns the uh the los angeles times right now and he apparently uh he brought in a great new uh editor uh executive editor kevin marina but kevin just resigned uh earlier this month i think because of the increasing uh headbutting that he had with soon Chong interfering with coverage to the point that the straw that broke his back i think was that uh there the la times was working on the story about some wealthy guy i can't remember i don't know who it is it's some but it was, it's a good friend of patrick soon Chong's who was involved in a dog biting uh thing with with a neighbor or something like that 
and he tried. To, he was trying to get that story killed, and uh, finally, Kevin Morita, uh, the editor, just had enough and quit. The story has not has not been published. It's still, uh, it's, it's, it, but he was his behind the scenes uh, influence was such that uh, it got to be too much for the paper's leadership. Wow. You know, on the one hand, you you could say, well, you know, he owns the paper. He has a right to um, have some input. But on the other hand, I mean, we saw that with uh, with the reader, one of the people who came in and rescued the Chicago reader was, you know, hailed as a hero. Uh, but then he decided he wanted to start writing op eds. And one of the op-eds was anti-vaccine, and it contained a lot of misinformation. And the staff at the Reader was up in arms and felt that if it, if the op-ed itself couldn't be corrected, that the Reader needed to run a, a sidebar piece correcting the misinformation. And it developed into such a, such a conflict that Tracy Bame, who was head of the reader at that point, volunteered that she would leave because she somehow, you know, was leading the charge for her people and protecting them. And she finally said, you know, if it will make this whole situation go away, I will, I will quit because the reader's plan was to become a nonprofit and this one owner um, was so had his nose so far out of joint he didn't want to sign off on the papers necessary for the reader to become a nonprofit which would have made the reader basically go out of business I mean it was really really ugly how do you weigh that whole idea because you know you and I both worked for companies where there was layers of management and there were times when there would be not not anybody telling you what to how to do a story or what to include or, or what to what to cut out. But there were definitely times where I felt that the that a certain topic perhaps was being introduced or there was mm, it's hard to say there was it felt like there were definitely things that you had to be careful of if you wanted to keep your job. Oh, well, that happened to me twice when I was working at, at CBS. Uh, one <laughs> Tell time, me about it. Um, one time uh, we were doing a story. I don't know if you remember. There was a, a TV uh, movie or TV miniseries about the Reagans, and uh, the Republicans were extremely upset about the uh, portrayal of how the uh, how the Reagans were being portrayed in this movie that was on CBS. And we were doing a story about it, and then uh, I was like – we submitted our script, and we were waiting and waiting and waiting for approval. We finally heard that approval went all the way up to Les Moonves. He, he was the one he, he read the script before it came down to us. There were some cha- couple couple changes, minor changes that didn't really affect the story. So, you know, but I was fine with that. But it, it was that you know a sensitive topic to them to to CBS corporate that mm-hmm. involved you know a, a non newsman, the, the, the chairman of CBS. And then another time, <laughs> I drew the short straw, and I had to do a story about the uh, the uh, wardrobe malfunction on oh. the Super Bowl, and uh, which was again on CBS. 
and uh, and that script went all the way up to Les Moonves before uh, before it was uh, approved, and we were waiting and waiting, and I had to crash at the last minute because our deadline for the CBS Evening News here in the Los Angeles it's six thirty Eastern time, three thirty our time. So we are always you know running around in a mad scramble and just uh, having to slap together pieces sometimes, especially that time when the the approved script came back so late. What we what do you think they were worried about? I mean, it's a pretty straightforward story. You know, he says, so, she says, this happened, whatever. Right, but you know, they wanted to make sure that you know CBS's position on this was was uh, was represented fairly and correctly and the way they wanted it, and uh, they you know they didn't want too much aspersions being cast on. Uh, I think mainly the thing is they wanted to, to make sure that. We, the producer and the correspondent, uh, knew what the issues were and uh, and all the nuances, you know, which is tough to fit in all the nuances in a minute 45 uh, piece. But, uh, but you know, it, it was something that was uh, a story that reflected critically on CBS. And I think they wanted to make sure that oh. it was not incorrectly critical. <laughs> so... So, uh, I see. So they it. weren't worried that you were going to talk too much about nip slip or something like that. It wasn't. No. Uh, it, <laughs> it wasn't was like whether uh, or not whether or not that whether or not CBS's uh, local uh, licenses could be pulled because of the the indecency that was on uh, on on the air for a second and a half. Oh, huh. That's really that's really interesting. Well, you know, maybe we could justify that in terms of they wanted to, you know make sure that they didn't run afoul of any laws or licensing requirements. I mean, I've done, we've all done stories before where they were, you know, we can't air it till you send it to the lawyers. You got to find out, you know, if you've said or done anything that could end up in court, which actually I think I, I did end up in court with, with, with one of my stories. Did, did you ever get badge of badge of honor? That's good. did, Did you ever get sued for anything you did? Uh, no, no, nothing. No, no. I have a clean record that time. Certainly threatened, really? but never, never sued. Yeah. Well, I don't know. I, I think that means that you probably weren't pushing the envelope, but maybe that's just being me being a little defensive. I, I don't know about that. <laughs> um, I also want to talk to you. I don't know if you, um, read Adam Kinzinger's Substack. Um, it is an acquired taste, <laughs> but um, he is, of course, our famous um, never Trumper. He and Liz Cheney, the uh, walk around wearing a scarlet R's, I guess. Um, but he said recently in one of his posts that the way to um, put Trump off off his game is to hit him where he's vulnerable. You know, he's the guy who likes to think of himself as a winner. He um, likes to think of himself as successful. And he said, you know, call him a loser. Point out all the things he's lost. Um, Talk about the fact that uh, he complains all the time, you know, and whines all the time. And he said this is something that he thinks the Biden campaign should be doing Almost every day. And then down the road, he said, Donald Trump says something negative and Joe Biden can roll his eyes and go, there you go again, you know, complaining and whining. And I think that he's right. I don't know 
that that would be a tactic because I think the Biden administration, at least so far, likes to uh, take the high road. And I'm not sure that's the high road, but I do think he's right in that it would be an effective strategy. If you were uh, advising the White House and how they should talk about Trump, what would you tell them? Well, I mean, I, the same thing. I think Biden did that successfully in that speech um, was uh, last early last week uh, where he called uh, Trump a loser. I think and that was a, that's exactly what he is. And the whole thing is like and, and Trump himself. I heard Trump last night, a bite from Trump saying this last night at one of his rallies, that he's a victim, that he's always oh. he's a victim of this aging Carol. He's a victim of the justice system and all this stuff like that. And, you know, somebody should point out, is that like who you want as your leader, a perpetual victim, a guy who can, who's never on the uh, right side, he's always on the downside. You know, that, it, it's, it, it's really strange to me. I think Nikki Haley is also finally uh, doing this, getting under his skin a little bit by pointing things like this out, and I think that really gets under Trump's skin, mainly because it's a woman telling him, uh, telling him how, how awful he is, and I think that's the, the, the worst thing in the world for him. Yeah, I think so, too. And I'm no fan of Nikki Haley. I think um, Anna Navarro on The View summed her up great. She's like one of those um, tall uh, balloon men with the with the with the hair that you see outside of car dealerships that they flop (laughs) this way and then they flop that way and then they flop back again. She said that's Nikki Haley. And I and I agree. But the fact that she is annoying Donald Trump. (laughs) I hope she stays in the race way past South Carolina. Do you think she'll stay in or drop out? I was just talking to ex-Congressman Joe Walsh. He thinks that she will drop out of the race before South Carolina. I'm not sure I agree. I'm not sure I agree. I mean, I've been reading some stuff about, well, you know, donors are like, you know, hemming and hawing. But one of her main donors is uh, Coke, you know, and – and I think that the, not Coca-Cola, you know, the, the, the one who's alive, Charles Koch, um, and they hate Donald Trump, the, the Koch Corporation and uh, K-O-C-H. And uh, I think that uh, you know, he's got unlimited funds. I, I wouldn't be surprised if, if she was kept afloat, certainly through uh, Super Tuesday and, uh, and, and maybe a little bit uh, a little bit beyond. You really think so? Because yeah. I, I, I agree. I think um, I think that the Koch family pack and all the other people who've donated to Nikki Haley have done so because they don't like Donald Trump. So why wouldn't they continue to fund her when she seems to be able to annoy him so very beautifully? Sadly, yeah. I also think that whenever the time comes that she does get out of the race, I think in the same breath she announces her withdrawal, she will then endorse Donald Trump. What do you think? Yeah. Well, you know, I, I mean, you know, if she wants to be a member of good standing in today's Republican Party, I guess that's what you have to do. But it's going to it's not it's not going to rebound redound to anybody's benefit down the line. Um, I want to play with you, uh, play for you. Um, Andy, I know we played this earlier, but I want to play the Jen Psaki and the James Carville interview. James Carville was on with Jen Psaki and they talked about reporting and they talked about Trump. Uh, Listen to this, Bruce. I mean, this is not 
a normal election. We can't treat it like that. But in your view, how should people, there's no historical parallel, how should people be talking about it out there? Well, first of all, Donald Trump is an adjudicated rapist. Uh, that's in, in the words of the judge. By the ordinary definition, actually, then maybe he's just a sexual assaulter but been found by a jury. He's also mm-hmm. an adjudicated business fraud. Mm-hmm. This is not normal. And, and so he must be identified as that at all times. And if the press is go, well, Trump said this, Biden said that, Biden said this, Trump, no, no. It, it, they have to be reminded at every juncture. This is, you know, when I grew up, uh, in, I was in college during the civil rights era. That's how bold I am. And you know what Pulitzer Prize winning journalists didn't do when Martin Luther King said something? They didn't go to Bull Connor and get a response. They printed what King didn't. They won Pulitzer Prizes. And there's a lot of these journalists, and you work with them, you know a lot of them. Mm -hmm. They just can't wait to normalize this. They can't wait to have drinks and yucks with Jason Miller uh, or Steve Miller and just act like everything is just, you know, it's it's a... Clinton and Dole, it's Obama and Romney, and we want to have our fun just like, you know, you and Jen did. No, that's not what it is. That's not it at all. We can't let them do that. He's talking there, obviously, about what we've made reference to, which is that um, around D.C., you know, the reporters who live there, work there, and cover uh, national politics, it does get to be... How do we put this? Like a club, like a, you know, whether you're on one side of an issue or another, you see the same people all the time. You run into them all the time. Do you think James Carville has described the situation accurately? I think he has. And but I also think that, unfortunately, it seems like a lot of times reporting things like that, just becomes a lot of white noise. I mean, you know, in any other time of the American history, if you had a guy who was this, you know, convicted uh, sexual assaulter and conv- and, and convicted uh, uh, um, financial, uh, you know, Fraudster. financial fraud, um, you would th- that would person would have been immediately wiped off from mm-hmm. from any consideration. Unfortunately, it has just become white noise in America because there are so many other distracting things that are happening to you that you see on social media that that take up your attention and all that stuff. And I, you know, I, I think that there's. I, I don't think there's any more convincing that has to be done. I think the MAGA people, the people who support Trump, are convinced, and they're not going to change their position. I also don't think there's a lot of otherwise con- persuadable people on the other side or in the middle. I think that there are people who have made up their minds one way or the other. And I'm not sure that the poll. I think um, that the polls are very accurate. I think that it's, uh, I think we're going to see maybe close. But I think that there, we're going to see a, uh, a not much movement in polls as we get closer to the uh, end of the election. Well, you know, at least we know that Republicans have a winning issue in going after Taylor Swift. Um, yeah. I mean, I can't imagine <laughs> right. how many votes that's going to garner. I know. It seems really desperate, all this thing about, you know, like that. Taylor Swift is a, a secret Democrat weapon, and she's going to appear at the, the halftime of the Super Bowl to endorse uh, Joe Biden. I mean, it's, it's, it's just this, like, grasping at straws, this fantasy land. Yeah, there's even, there are even reports that the Super Bowl is rigged. 
that um, there's like a deep state involvement in rigging the Super Bowl because of her involvement with Travis Kelsey. Now, I'm not quite sure how that ties together or why anybody would care. But that is also one of the um, one of the stories making the rounds. Why are you know, I mean, good God, Republicans afraid of Taylor Swift. Okay, all right. I, they're afraid Taylor Swift is going to come out for Democratic candidates. They're afraid of uh, Taylor Swift getting some of her followers to uh, vote for the issues that that young people already seem to believe in. But, yeah, let's go after Taylor Swift. I yeah, feel so it's sorry sad for her. Think, it's sad to think that there are just, you know, so many people who believe that there is a vast international conspiracy that is beyond you that is controlling everything and there's nothing you can do about it you know and so you can blame it any any bad thing or the outcome that you don't like on that it's really sad that the the abrogation of reality that's happening in america and around the world yes bruce thank you so much for spending uh, an afternoon with us rather than being on the movie set um yeah well <laughs> Keep your eyes peeled for, you know, two seconds in the background sometimes. Okay, we absolutely will. Thanks for being here. Thanks for the discussion. I appreciate it. Thank you. We are going to be back um, with the Capital Fools, or at least one of their writers, when we come right back after this. Here's a question for you, Donald, Mr. President. Tell us, please, after you lost the election, do you have a recollection of inciting insurrection? What you claim you had no clue, could you now give us a statement since indictments aren't true? When you're under oath, what are you gonna do? Lie, lie, lie. <laughs> lie, 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 lie. One of the most fun nights uh, that I ever had at the um, North Shore Center for the Performing Arts was when I saw <clears throat> the Capitol Steps perform. And I used to go uh, every year when I could get a babysitter. They are back now, but it isn't quite the same group. It is now called, they are now called the Capital Fools, and, but their origin is in the Capital Steps, and one of those Capital Steps helped them transform into this new organization. Um, I really want to thank the Capital Fools for coming on WCPT and sponsoring this segment. We've already given away tickets to the show, but now I want to hear uh, from one of the writers of the show. Mark Eaton is here. Mark, thanks for being here. Oh, it's my pleasure. Now, explain the um, the how the evolution of Capital Fools occurred. Well, um, you know, the just for a little back history, uh, going back to the Capital Steps days, uh, the Capital Steps were not built to survive not performing for a year or so. So when the pandemic hit, um, we kind of limped along for a little bit, like everybody else thinking, oh, it's going to be another three months and we'll be out of it. It'll be another three months and we're out of it. Uh, and when it went on for a year and a half, uh, we just decided to shutter our doors after nearly 40 years. Um, of poking fun at everyone. And, um, you know, there were a couple of diehards, uh, Jack Rolls and some of the other folks that said, hey, you know, this 
such a target-rich environment. Everybody loves to laugh <laughs> at these guys. Let's just keep doing something. And so uh, I said, look, if you want to be the organizer, you want to hire the people you want, all that stuff, I'd be happy to write something. But that's pretty much where my involvement ended because uh, back in the Capital Steps days, I was writing, I was performing, I was booking the shows, I was kind of the quasi-manager. So uh, I didn't want to wear quite as many hats. So mm-hmm. Jack took on that um, responsibility, and um, they're they're churning and chugging along, and uh, we're getting great great feedback about the show. Is it the same mission statement? Yes, basically, it is the same mission statement of being equal opportunity offenders. <laughs> if you're up, if you if you're up for picking on you know your guy, your party, just hold your breath because the next song will be about the other guy or the other party. Mm-hmm. I love the way uh, you said that it was a target-rich environment. It is. <laughs> it is almost. There are almost too many targets in this environment that exists right now. One thing that, that always impressed me about the Capital Steps was how nimble the organization was. I mean, uh, something would happen in the day or two before I saw the show, and it would be part of the show. Is that um, same kind of adaptation still a part of what you guys do? Yeah, if there is a major major story or a major gaffe by a, a politician, we'll certainly try to get something in. Um, the Capitol Fools, not so much as the as the Capitol Steps trying to be ripped straight from the headlines. We tried to make a little more of a, a show that can go for a couple months as it is, unless there's a major breaking story. Mm-hmm. Um, it really became, you know, we were kind of addicted to it in the Capitol Steps because that everybody said, oh, my gosh, I can't, like you said, I can't believe something happened two days ago, and it's already in the show. Well, the problem with when Donald Trump came along is that he did something like that virtually every other day, or sometimes yeah. he would tweet something every hour, and it was almost impossible to keep up with what he, with what he was doing. And sometimes people would say, oh, I thought you would have – you know, something about Donald's tweet about XYZ in the show tonight. And we realized it would almost become impossible at that point to, to be ripped from the headlines. Isn't that, isn't that the truth? I mean, I, I saw the same thing in the news media. I mean, he would do something or say something that in olden days would have been a week-long headline story. And, you know, the very next day, it's not even mentioned, you know, it's not even relegated to the to the end of the newscast or or, you know, the right. B section of the paper. <laughs> and I think a little bit is that because all these politicians now are on Twitter as well. And I mean, I think you could probably go through Twitter and find something dopey that a politician has said almost every day or a gaffe or something that's just factually wrong. And uh, so I think we've all become a little numb to it, and uh, so we just try to hit the hit the highlights of what's funny about this person or funny about this issue, or you know that's that's the way we're approaching it now. So tell me, what can people expect? What will they see on stage? What will they hear? How is the show structured? Well, if they have been to the past Capital Step shows, it's going to be very similar. I mean, it's the same kind of very fast paced. Uh, as, you know, uh, Zelensky is walking off stage, maybe Nancy Pelosi is walking on stage, as she's leaving, maybe Trump's coming on. Um, you know, kind of roughly 30 numbers skits uh, in the show. 
Um, so, again, the, the DNA of the Capitol steps is firmly in place uh, in this show. How do you how do you decide what to put in the show? What are the criteria you use? <sighs> well, you know, ultimately, the criteria is the audience. Um, you know, I've written plenty of things uh, in the steps days. Elena and I have written plenty of things that we thought were absolutely hilarious <laughs> and then perform them and get kind of the polite golf applause after the number mm-hmm. because it's a story that we thought was bigger being in D.C. than it really is, you know, in Skokie or Chicago or wherever. Uh-huh. Um, so, you know, ultimately, the, the audience is the arbiter. Uh, of what's in the show and what's not in the show. But, you know, you kind of get a feel of what's, what something is, uh, when something is out there that everybody kind of knows about. I mean, we have some generic songs, you know, about texting each other. Um, you know, uh, you know, you don't, you don't send emails anymore. Uh, you kind of hit the big, you know, you kind of hit the big players. You know, you got Mitch McConnell and you've got Schumer and you got Pelosi. And then, of course, you got Biden and Trump. Um, so you just get a feel of what, what people are are really going to be willing to laugh at. When something happens in the political world, can you always make it funny or some, are there are some things that just resist? Uh, You know, if it's a big story, I mean, we've always had pretty good luck. I mean, if it's a, if it's a major story short of, uh, I don't know. I'm trying to think of something that's ever happened that, um, Hmm. Well, I mean, you know, look, we, we've made fun of, of elderly in Congress for for a million years. I mean, we used to do Strom Thurmond, uh, you know, and we'd use the old BGs, staying alive, but keep them alive, keep them alive. <laughs> so, you know, you could do that with Strom Thurmond back in the day. Um, and we did it recently uh, with Diane Feinstein up to the point uh, when she finally, you know, unfortunately passed. And, um, you know, so even even being you know, 90 some years old and kind of doddering along, people are willing to laugh at it because these people never leave office. It's very rare that they'll walk out on their own. Yeah. Um, what are spoonerisms and why are they in your show? <laughs> you know, that goes back a long time in the Capitol steps when uh, when Bill Strauss introduced Lurdy Dies, which is what he called them. I think uh, in this new incantation, we call it... Uh, uh, what is it? Talking whack birds, I think, is what we is what they're calling it. Um, but it is basically the classic spoonerism. I mean, just uh, taking uh, taking a topic, uh, flipping the words around to try to make it funny. Um, and, and you know, it always just kind of sounds silly. But once people kind of get their ear adjusted to it, um, it's always it's always wildly popular. Um, you know, so we you know. You want me to you want me to try some backwards talking? Oh I my done God! While, yes, like, that would be wonderful. <laughs> well, you know, you basically you start you just say you know uh, something like, "Ladies and gentlemen, for the for the past thirty years, we've poked fun at stupid politicians." And you say, "Oh, sorry, sorry, wait a minute. Let me, let me try that again." Uh, ladies and gentlemen, for the last thirty years, we've poked fun at stupid politicians. So you just do a whole bunch of stuff like that, you know, whether it's. Trunnel Dump, or uh, whether it's Bo Jiden, um, you got the whole the whole gambit to play with the words. Um, do you ever find that the audience gets mad? We have rarely had people get mad because hopefully they know what they're coming to. I mean, you're coming to a comedy show about politics that's going after everybody. We don't consider anybody 
you know, not a target. Um, you know, one time we had a person that actually really said you really shouldn't be making fun of the president of the United States. And we thought that was kind of kind of odd. Um, we've had, you know, some instances where, uh, you know, back in the day, we portrayed everybody, whether that was Kim Jong-un, um, whether that was um, a Native American, you know, we had somebody portraying them. And that rubs people uh, a little differently these days. You know, if you're not an Asian mm-hmm. person, they don't want to see you portraying an Asian person. Yeah. And we were doing it very farcical, and it's not like Kim Jong-un was a nice guy. But, you know, sometimes uh, sensitivities change. Are audiences under the Biden administration different than audiences when Trump was in, in power? Uh, I don't think so. Um, you know, they. Um, I would say that our, our audiences typically have been, for lack of a better I say leaning a little more to the liberal side of, of where they're of where they sit, and so they just love going after Donald Trump and Republicans. Um, you know, we always laughed back in the day. Um, maybe the high high point was back in the Bush administration, um, Bush uh, second, um, W, because um, he had kind of that, well, you know, like I say, I'm not the smartest speller in the room, <laughs> but um, he – had the ability that the, the the Democrats wanted to laugh at him and Republicans wanted to laugh with him. And, you know, you could make jokes about, you know, um, don't go faking your smart, George Bush singing that. Um, and everybody laughed at it, both sides. Nowadays, people, if it's their guy, they're not going to laugh as hard. So wait, cause really? On the, the other side of the aisle. I think so. This is the way I feel about it. Hmm. Do you, once you've got a show written, do you look at it and say, okay, well, we're we're making too much fun of one side and not enough fun of the other side? Do you try to keep it balanced, or does it just not yeah, matter? It's just whatever's fun. Yeah. Yeah, well, we do try to keep it balanced because sometimes it does get – it feels very lopsided after a while. Um, so we try to even it up as best we can, but we still want it to be the funniest show it possibly can. But, um, you know, when you've got, uh, you know, for an example, if one party has, you know, the House, the Senate and the White House, um, that's where most of the targets are going to be. Um, so sometimes it, it feels like we're picking on one side a little too much, but we try to even it out. Um, and then, like I say, we'll have some songs that are just uh, kind of, you know, semi non-political, whether it's singing about the price of gas or, uh, you know, just kind of a, a silly you know, fairy tale about, you know, different politicians or just just something to mix it up. I I think that's really interesting that you have observed that it seems that people are not as eager to laugh when you make fun of of their own particular side. And, you know, I guess that's the same sort of partisan stuff that we see in so many other walks of life now so why shouldn't oh, it yeah why shouldn't it show up for you in in yeah, in yeah. what you do as as well i i guess that well, we had people oh i'm sorry i didn't mean to no, go ahead we, i was just gonna say that makes perfect when, sense yeah i mean when donald trump was elected um uh, we this was back so i was still to steps and we had several people cancel shows because they said oh it's not you know politics laughing at politics will never be funny again you know, it's not going to be fun anymore. It's just going to be kind of a drudge. So 
um, you know, people have different attitudes about it. We, on the other hand, have always said that, one, they're easy to mock, and more importantly, two, they deserve to be mocked. So it's, it's, it's shooting fish in the barrel, but people appreciate it. You know, some people have said, when I've talked to other entertainers, that the world of politics has gotten so insane that it's almost already satire. Like, how do you satirize what is already seems like satire to people? <laughs> yeah, that is true. I mean, that's and, and maybe one of the benefits is because we are, you know, musical, using tunes, doing, you know, song parodies. Maybe that gives us just a little bit of a different edge than just going out and doing, you know, say, stand up and deciding to rail against Trump or Biden. And in a general audience, half the people are going to hate it. Half the people are going to like it. So maybe we uh, maybe that shield of of song parodies is a little bit of uh, a thing that gives us a a little bit of a break. Yeah. uh, The fact that you can sing about it, because I'm thinking back to. I mean, come on, Marjorie Taylor Greene with Jewish space lasers, Jewish space <laughs> lasers. I mean, you wouldn't even invent that if it didn't already exist. Um, right, right. Did you, uh, and you ever... know, people like uh, I mean, you know, when you look back at um, I mean, you know, George Santos, mm. I mean, how could you be funnier than just you could stand up there and just read his actual quotes or his tweets, and they'd be hilarious. So you got to come up with something different. <laughs> you know, I was talking uh, to a reporter from New Hampshire, and he mentioned that there were a lot of, for the primary, there were some celebrities who showed up. And I was like, well, like who? And he goes, well, like George Santos. And I was like, oh, my God. Like, who invited him? What was he there for? Did anybody talk to him? Um, and it was just like... And he said, no, that he didn't get the feeling that anybody had invited him. But, you know, he just was there ostensibly to show his support for Donald Trump. Mm. And, you know, just he said, I really think he was just wanted to sort of stay in the limelight. Oof. Well, you're, whoever that was has a very loose loose definition of celebrity. I can tell you that. <laughs> <laughs> well, he actually said that. He said, now, when I say celebrity, you've got to remember that I'm a total political geek. So, you know, take this with a, with a grain of salt. You know, there has been from well, time to time some racy, uh, sexy, lurid behavior from people who are in the news. Uh, how do you handle that? Or do you just stay away from it? Oh, that's the, you know, that's the, that's gold when it's something sexual oh or a scandal like that. That's, that's what we really want because that's when you can have some fun. Uh, I mean, you know, I mean, we've got, uh, Lauren Boebert, uh, things put your hands, put your hands in the hands of the man. I feel you oughta. Yeah, um, I was going to ask so, you if you touched on the Beetlejuice experience, uh, of Lauren Boebert. Oh, absolutely. Boebert. Oh my God. Yes, indeed. You're really pushing the envelope, buddy. Well, you know, I mean, it's uh, it was out there all over the all over the media for a couple of weeks. So uh, when you got a when supposedly she's getting groped in a movie theater, or I mean, I'm sorry, in a, in a real theater, uh, you got to do something about that. So, like I say, we've got uh, the parody of "Put Your Hand in the Hand," and that's what we but that's what we use. Put your hands in the hands of your man. I feel you oughta. If you're drunk, give that hunk and his dunk a little squeeze. I mean, come on. Oh, right to self. Oh, does does it? I'm, you know, every time there's one of these scandals, Mark, I'm going to have to call you and say, Mark, I need a song. I need a song about this. Quick, give me some lyrics. That's what we always just say. It's like, oh, there's a quick. Find out what rhymes with it. 
how do you, I mean, is it easy for you? Are you just sort of somebody that, you know, their mind works this way? Yeah, I think I think a little bit of that is true. Uh, you know, Elena um, and myself, um, I think we just kind of think that way. You you constantly hear a song and you're like, oh, that'd make a funny, you know, maybe the chorus could be this, even before there's really a, a, a song, an, an issue that you're going to put into it. Um, but then other times an issue comes along and you're just like, okay, we got to, this is so big, we got to have something. So you go to the rhyming dictionary or you just start futzing through your brain. I mean, just, um, you know, trying to come up with the right song or what maybe the hook is right. And um, so it's something that's, I guess it's just a weird little skill that um, it, it doesn't come super easy, but I think it comes easier to me than to a lot of folks. So, um, I can, you know, if somebody gives me an idea, I can usually crank out something in a in a couple days. <laughs> Were you funny in high school? I was kind of the wise crack kind of guy. And, you know, that's kind of the, the capital steps, you know, that when, when we all originally did work on the Hill, um, it was always kind of the, you know, the office wise guys and the guys that we were always joking around even on the Hill uh, was kind of the. The, the batch of people that they that they hired to become <laughs> to get into the group. Well, um, I think it's a, a wonderful night. And boy, this radio station is your perfect audience because we love politics and we love to have fun. And I think it's a match made in heaven. Uh, and Mark, I'm so pleased you were able to take time to speak with us of uh, this um, entertainment segment was sponsored by the Capital Fools. You can see them at the North Shore Center for the Performing Arts in Skokie. Easy to get to from the city, easy to get to from the Burbs. February 3rd and 4th, Saturday, there's two shows, 2 p.m., 8 p.m. Sunday, there's a 2 p.m. show. Uh, tickets are still available, and they're very reasonable, 40 to $52, depending upon where you want to sit. And I'm telling you, you will have fun. It is a delight. And Mark, it is a delight to speak with you. Thank you for being here. Oh, thank you. It was my pleasure. And uh, I hope your audience gets out and fills up the fills up the theater. Yes, we will do our best. <laughs> I promise. All right. Okay. Um, thank, we're gonna you. thank you. We're going to take a break and be back with more right after this. Can't listen to Joan Esposito? Surely you can't be serious. Live, local, and progressive in your car today? I am serious, and don't call me sure. Don't fret. You can still listen to her on the TuneIn app on both your phone and computer. Whoa! You feel that right away. Oh. It's just refreshing. WCPT 820, Chicago's progressive talk, where facts matter. Now back to Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. And that is going to do it for me today. Thanks to Joe Walsh and Bruce Rines and Mark Eaton of the Capital Fools. I will be here tomorrow at 2 o'clock. Right now, we are going to be driving it home with Patty Vasquez. Have a great evening. Stay safe, my friends. Good night.